This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Along with Jeff and Terry, the gang is gathered to bring you the best uh, information we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead a healthier, happier t- uh, time in life. By the way, um, if you missed our last hour, you got to go check out our podcast. Go to Dr. Just go to uh, BYURadio.org. Just look up Dr. Matt's show, Matt Townsend. That's my name. Don't wear it out. All right. I will never say it again. Sorry. That's me going all childish. You can also find it on iTunes, on TuneIn, on Stitcher. It's everywhere. But uh, you're going to want to go check out uh, those segments. Plus, you can really look at any of our past 1,410 shows. Is it really that many? Yeah. I know. Been doing it for five years here. Plus, uh, actually six years in May. Five and a half years we've been grinding away at the, uh, you know, on on life and trying to give you all the tools we can. Today, by the way, no exception, we will be talking today about a crisis of faith and what might be happening to younger people as they're becoming less uh, focused on, you know, church and wanting to have a faith system. And is that even true data? We'll talk to a researcher here at Brigham Young University to give us some insight on that. Plus, of course, uh, we're going to talk about life and politics, and it's almost like you can't not say something about the Grammys. You could. Uh, Bruno mm. Mars walked away with the show. Yeah. Along well, with him and Hillary. And Hillary and others. I mean, there was a lot of uh, Me Too moments, hashtag Me Too moments. There See, were... I, I went back and looked at Bruno Mars. He did... He's been in a couple Super Bowl yeah. halftimes. Oh, he's a great entertainer. He is a great entertainer. You don't yeah. need to watch the Grammys. Just go watch him on YouTube. No. It's great stuff. He's fantastic. He's dancing around. You're like, oh, look at that. That's, that's something you yeah. can watch. You can, there's real Carpool talent. Carpool Karaoke. Have you seen him on that one? Yep. That show with James Corden? Corden tried to do a Subway Karaoke with Sting and a uh, yeah. guy named Shaggy. That didn't go well. Hmm. Didn't it? Granted, it was set up not to go well, but it was funny. See, now I would have <laughs> loved to have seen a, a Carpool Karaoke with with James Corden and Hillary. Well, I, I, that would have been she, great. I don't know that she's a singer. I don't know that she has, a, she has a Grammy. <laughs> what? Oh, on her book. She, had a, she read her book and her performance. She's it won a Grammy for a it. village. Wow. Yeah, that's why, that's why she's all involved. She's a Grammy winner. Yeah. We just watched a movie on Netflix uh, this last weekend about a polka artist who was nominated for a Grammy. I watched that as well. You did? Uh-huh. The, king, uh, the Polka King? The Polka King. What are you guys doing? Jack Black. There's like all kinds of it things was, to watch. I know. Well, actually, it was really yeah. interesting. I'm in between. I'm looking for a new. I watched a lot of comedians yeah. in cars drinking coffee, yeah. which is interesting because I don't even drink coffee. It's interesting. But it was fun to watch the comedians. And interesting little fact about Jerry Seinfeld. Did you know that he's not? He wears tennis shoes every day. Every day. Mm. Well, you can when you're getting in a $200,000 car. That's not his, but yeah. <laughs> 
But um, one of the things that's interesting is he's really not for all of this swearing that these comedians comedians do. He right. thinks it's a cheap way to get a laugh. Oh, it is. Sure. And he's very adamant that, you know, there's better ways to get people to laugh. And really, you should use more of your brain than your language. It's kind of the equivalent of, you know, your kids will always laugh when potty words are said. Yeah. It's just like that. Now, you know what? My mom will, too. Well, I will, too. Yeah. Don't give me a, a well-placed potty. I'm, yeah, <laughs> probably no, won't talk no, too good, much about don't it. Don't say it. Good way, way to have self-control there. In fact, <laughs> I did a I did a speech last night to a group of youth, young mm. not youth, young single adults, like thirty or twenty to thirty year olds, and um, yeah, it's there's just this human nature to even if you don't say certain words, people just giggle out loud when they hear certain thought or they have a, when I can create a certain thought in their mind. Hmm. They just want to giggle. So they were immature. Well, I don't know if they were or I was. <laughs> but people just – you want to giggle. And my wife, by the way, she – I don't know what it is. She will laugh at – like, okay, let's just say, for example, that my zipper was down accidentally while I was giving a speech. All right. Like, let's just say that. Yeah. I mean, it's for never instance. happened. Right. But let's say if it did. Maybe last night. Yeah, last night it didn't happen. Oh, okay. Because I had a pulpit in front of me. Right. But um, she will. She just thinks that's the funniest thing in the world. Huh. Me, mm. me, or me tripping and falling with my bad ankles, you know, my, my Nana's ankles. Your grinkles. My yep. grinkles. She, if I fall, she just thinks that's hilarious and she can't stop laughing. Does, or if I'm she, passing a kidney stone. Does she wait till maybe after to find out if no. you're hurt or not? Mm-mm. Really? She's just, she kind See, of, she, I mean, she'll run to my side. My family and I were riding uh, public transit. Really? We parked our car, drove downtown to see Christmas lights. And my kid was sitting on this chair. It was one of those, the, the single chairs they have. Yeah. My wife and I were sitting on the double chair with the baby. He wanted He's to be over the big there. boy. Right. Yeah. And I told him, you need to sit down. Yeah. The train's going to stop. It's going to start. Yeah. It may throw you. You need to sit in your chair and be ready to move. And he goes, okay. And so they slam on the brakes and he goes flying across <laughs> the thing on the floor. And I just started laughing because it was yeah. funny. And then I went, wait a second. I, I just out loud, I go, maybe I should check if he's okay before I start laughing at the six-year-old. Yeah. And the Good. woman across the aisle just starts dying laughing. She thought that was a funny <laughs> comment from a dad. And I went, all right. Everyone yeah. thinks I'm funny. See, now you're a comedian. And he was hurt, but he was fun. He, he brushed it off. I actually – I had a moment with my Sunday school class where I, I always like to have them check in and everyone – I always ask them – one thing, and I have everyone go around the room, and I've got like twenty. So you're wasting time, like I used to do when I well, taught the similar class. It's actually, it's actually, yeah. As a professional educator, yeah, it's a great way to get everyone in. The best part, I ask the kids, why do you think we just did that? And they go, well, you're trying to waste time, so you have yeah. less time to teach us. No, like, well, yeah, but I'm trying to find out something about these but kids. I so I found a really great question to ask. Oh, what I is want it? you to think about and tell everybody your earliest childhood memory. Oh wow. And then we went around the room. We've got like 20 kids. And they all told their earliest childhood memory. By the way, about 85% of them were really bad memories. Did anyone say... (laughs) Traumatic memories. Like tugging on the umbilical cord to get more apple juice. No. Nothing? No one did that. No. That is interesting because most of my childhood memories that I've retained are the ones where I got in trouble or Mm -hmm. I got hurt. Yeah. Yeah, So this one one boy says, I remember that... I would never put my seatbelt on, and my mom said, you better put your seatbelt on, and I wouldn't put my seatbelt on. So my mom slammed on the brakes, and I went flying, and he said, I hit the console wow. and pushed and popped out four or three of my teeth. 
Oh. And it got really quiet, and then I'm like, wow. Wow. That's, and that's a little harsh. No, I did it gently just to bang his head against the padded seat in front of him, but it sounds like that car wasn't. Yeah, no. See, no. that sounds like karma. Never met mom. her. Never met her. For the mom. That sounded like karma. And yeah. when we get to the MT News, don't let me forget, oh, I have a story about karma. He's back to karma. The karma must have really messed him over this week. Karma's a chameleon. Yeah. So maybe that's why you've never seen her. Yeah. You know, I may have seen her, but I didn't see her. Hmm. Let's. Uh, speaking of chameleons, let's get to the news now with Terry South. Terry, what should we be paying attention to? Voters want to hear President Donald Trump talk about health care and the economy at this week's State of the Union address. When asked which issues they wanted Trump to address in Tuesday's speech, the largest percentage of voters said it's very important for Trump to discuss improving the health care system. 15, huh. 59%. Well, and, yeah. I mean, you can't just tear down the system, right? You need to improve it. Right. And followed by improving the economy and creating jobs at 58%, according to a Politico morning consult poll, combing uh, the, those who said it was very and somewhat important. More than four in five voters want to hear Trump's plans for health care on Tuesday. The poll taken at the one-year mark of Trump's term also found that voters want to hear about fighting terrorism at 54%. They say that's very important for the president to discuss this issue, that issue in the speech also. Wow, because that's tomorrow night, right? Tomorrow night. And he'll be able to then unleash all of his proposed ideas. I mean, if so instead of just reacting to Congress, this oh, right. is where he could lead them and say, he could. I want an infrastructure bill. Right. I want... We're going to Mars. We're going to fix... Yeah. yeah. Stuff like that. That's great. They've done that in the past and then never did anything with it. Yeah, them, right. But, yeah, but it's a neat moment. Uh, he'll talk probably about his infrastructure because he's talked about that when the night he won yeah. the election. Oh, and yeah. of course, that probably will never happen this year because, you know, got to get Democrats on board. Right. During an interview with former Apprentice winning winner Pierce Morgan. Did you know Pierce Morgan won The Apprentice? I didn't know that. I did not uh, know that. Donald Trump uh, said that his early morning tweet storms sometimes come directly from his bed in the White House. Hmm. Uh, Morgan told Trump that every morning the whole world was waiting for him to wake up and start firing off his social media messages. He goes, it's a crazy situation, Trump admitted. Oh, Although on. he said he was the, uh, the o- it was the only way for him to battle the so-called fake news. If I don't have that form of communication, I can't defend myself, he says during the interview. IT, ITV network, if you want to see this on probably YouTube or something. Yeah, I did. Morgan asked, are you actually lying in bed with your phone while work, working out how to wind everybody up? Trump ignored the implication that he was an elite Twitter troll, but admitted that he was sometimes still tucked up in bed when he started. Well, perhaps sometimes in bed, sometimes at breakfast or lunch or whatever. He'll do it anywhere. Trump said he usually posted the messages himself outside of his busy office hours. We know those to be called executive time. Well, some people will listen to books on tape or soothing sounds in order to go to sleep. He just sends out tweets. Yeah. Um, so he goes to bed. I promise, though, if he wants to ensure that there is a landslide victory for himself mm. and the GOP, right? all he has to do is, in the State of the Union, say, I will hereby not be tweeting anymore mm. until wow. December of 2017. 18. 2018, yes, because that's the, the year we are in. Yes. <laughs> and if he would do that, landslide victory. Really? Yeah. Well. Trust me. How else is he going to like endorse people across the country when he doesn't want to travel past the Mississippi? He can have his people tweet, but he would refrain from tweeting. And then I promise all the independents and half the liberals huh. would vote for him. Okay. It would be a great moment. Sweep.
In other news, a bill in uh, the New York State Assembly will soon, they'll soon vote on a piece of legislation that, if passed, would stop youth football leagues and schools from allowing kids to play tackle football. Wow. Authored by uh, New York State Assemblyman Michael uh, Benedito, the bill is called the John Mackey Youth Football Protection Act, named after an NFL star player who died after suffering symptoms of CTE, which is the degenerative brain disease. Yeah. Specifically, the bill would bar any child under the age of 13 from playing tackle football. The bill has no co-sponsors in the state Senate and as a result is unlikely to pass, despite the fact that research linking long-term brain disease is repeated, head trauma is solid, and there is no... There is plenty of reason to believe that young players suffer the consequences of repeated hits. And we've had research yeah. that already have shown this, but no one's but really that, confident to get on board with what's But here football. we are in a, probably a more liberal Senate of New York. It's starting to happen. And again, it doesn't mean you need like major concussions. It just is repeated head trauma. It's the small hits. Yeah, the which small hits. in Little League football is just the that's, whole game that's all done in the summer during two a days right as you're <laughs> learning all the how damage to you need right so yeah I, it's not going anywhere but you'll start seeing more and more of those pop yeah. up as people keep worrying about their kids and, and what might happening. be better is instead of legislating it parents could just choose not to do it and they are the, the enrollments are down 20 percent since flag 2011 football so. should get more and more popular there you go i think you could teach a lot of skills yeah and then introduce tackling later on if that's where they want to go. And as Jeff and I have discovered, you could play taser football, which is uh, double-handed, two-below tasers on your hands. Okay. When two hands touch, you shock the person, they are immobilized huh. and carried off the field. I still think it should be a pie fight. We have not been able to see eye-to-eye -eye on this. Yeah. You got too much pie on your eye. Finally, a freak accident nearly took the life of a 13-year-old boy in Maryland oh. last week when a six-inch screw entered his skull. Oi, oi, uh, ouch. Darius Foreman was building a treehouse Saturday when he fell from a branch, knocking over a five-foot-long wooden board, which came down on the top of his head. Uh, his mother, this is from his mother recounting this, an x-ray from Johns Hopkins Hospital where the boy was airlifted show a portion of the screw lodged be right between the two halves of the brain, yeah, threatening to tear the largest channel that drains blood and other fluids from the brain. Injury to this part of the brain would be catastrophic, according to the surgeon, uh, Dr. Alan Cohen. He was a millimeter away from having himself bleed to death, the doctor oh, said. Oh, wow. Because I, uh, I absolutely panicked, his mother said. It was very scary, one of the scariest things I've ever been through because the board was still attached to him by the screw in his head. Fire rescue couldn't fit the boy into the ambulance. At first, so they used a family saw to cut the board down from five feet to two feet. Oh, man. Then, even even then, they still had trouble fitting him into the first of two helicopters that came to airlift him to the hospital. Uh, they're on pins and needles. You can yeah. see they're worrying about bone and blood clots. And bah. there's two-hour surgery involved in all this. He had the board in there a total of about seven hours, his mom said. Uh, the doctor said they got the call. It doesn't matter who's on call. You both, he, was, uh, the, he says your husband and wife, they both wake up because yeah. you know, the phone rings yeah. all that. Uh, so she went first. And, and uh, so they, the doctors got there. They cut the bolt. And then the board office had leaving the end of the screw for Cohen's team to go in and try to remove it. Oh. Right? And that's where you're like, lefty Lucy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Make sure you go lefty. He's a lucky kid. The operation was a success. Foreman was discharged Thursday. He kept the wow. screw as a memory of his close call. That was his 13th birthday, apparently, too. Oh, Foreman said he learned a valuable lesson that day. Never build a tree fort. No, Whew. that may not be the lesson. But that's what he's going with. Make sure you... Hire a professional. <laughs> but that's the problem. One little weird accident, and the next thing you know, you got a board screwed to your head. Right. Ah! That's just, 
I, by the way, I've been on scenes like that with rebar or whatever, and you have to then mobilize. I mean, you have to like stabilize this wood, and I mean, it's a nightmare because it moves any little bit. It could cause a huge problem. And then, and then he's just a millimeter away. I, you would think that. I don't know. I I would have left the screw intact, and then you just hook the drill on the other end and make sure you reverse it out. There's really no. I mean, I'm not a doctor like that, but <laughs> I don't know if that's really the most important part. But, I mean, the thing. bigger thing is you got a board in the operating room too. Yeah, boy, that's a lucky boy. I'm telling you. How do you follow up that story? Karma. Karma. Never met her. So, have you ever sold anything online? Something no. used that you just don't want anymore. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have. I so have it. my family has. We've been selling a lot of things, and you know, you'll always see in the description uh, twenty dollars OBO. The OBO stands for or best offer. Yeah. So assuming there's somebody out there that wants to pay more than what you're requesting, then you'll give it to the person that'll pay more. Right. 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 So I uh, responded to a text with, "Well, this person's willing to pay forty. How interested are you? And the person's response to me was, karma, good luck with life. Oh, wow. How am I supposed to take that? Well, I think they obviously think your name is karma, first of all. Which is wrong. <laughs> Not even close. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Cause... So now I need to be looking over my shoulder. Yeah. Because this person mm-hmm. thinks I was doing a bad thing. Yeah. So the idea of karma, whatever goes around, comes around. They, they thought that this wasn't a bidding process. They thought that this was just you were going to live up to your word and it would be $40. So, yeah, now I have to worry about bad karma coming my way. Yeah. It, I mean – but I don't. Just, I can't. I don't need people sending bad karma my way. Well, but no. But they didn't. Nobody sends it. See, karma would suggest that you created the bad vibration out into the ether sphere that would then come back to you in a in a rebound effect and do something. I don't know. Maybe you'll end up building a you know a treehouse and a screw will Ugh. get somehow lodged into your skull. Well, I'm not at fault here, right? I just do. No, what... you are. You are. Oh. You broke the karma rule. Hmm. Speaking of karma, maybe there's karma involved in this story. Okay. It's kind of wacky. So police in the eastern German city of Dresden say two men suffered minor injuries after backing into one another in two consecutive accidents. (laughs) Here's how it went down. Tuesday, a 49-year-old man pulled into a disabled parking place. Then reversed out after noticing his mistake. So is he's it, doing the is, noble is thing. The, is the parking place disabled or is it a, disa- a place for, for disabled, disabled people. people? Okay. Yes. Uh, for I disabled that people. Clear. Noticed he shouldn't be parking there, started backing up. Yeah. As he backed out, he accidentally hit a 72-year-old man. No. Oh, ow. Who was walking behind the car, injuring him slightly. After the two men exchanged information for a report... The older man got in his car and backed out of his own parking spot, hitting the younger man in the process <laughs> and slightly injuring him. Ah, I shouldn't be laughing. That's not funny. Yeah. So maybe there's some karma involved there. Like if you hit a 72-year-old man, a 72-year-old man is going to yeah. hit you back. The difference is the 72-year-old can say, well, I didn't see him. I'm old. I didn't even see the young man that just hit me. And by the way, some would just say that's passive aggressive. It's just, you know, it's payback. You know, that is a point. That is a point. I didn't say a good point or a bad point. It is a point. I'm just a little scared. I'm, 
I'm not sure what's going to happen to me in no, the coming you, days and weeks. I'd watch it when you're walking in the parking lots now. Is that a threat? Are you? No, the, it's not a threat. It's a promise. Are you the deliverer of the bad karma? No, but I am the only person in this room that has backed into somebody lately. Hmm. Here's another Twice. story that really hurt. Yeah. So there's a Las Vegas man who's arrested Sunday after allegedly striking his daughter in the face with a jar of cheese dip. No way. Yeah. What kind of guy does that? So he's 50 years old. Alfonso Stanley, he told police he hit his adult daughter because she was trying to eat his food. Oh, boy. Stanley's daughter told police she tried to replace the food after her father said it was his, but he attacked her and slammed a glass jar of Doritos nacho cheese dip Uh into the left side of her face. It really hurt. I'm going to have a lump there, you idiot. You fight like a woman. (laughs) Wow. Interesting. That was audio from the event. So uh, Stanley was taken into custody shortly after. Yeah. Listen to this. According to the report, Stanley told police that he hit his daughter with a jar because it was the first thing he saw. Yeah. He said he would have hit her with his cane if the jar hadn't been there. And I'm thinking, what, what if he would have seen other things? Like, what if he had seen, like, a jar of mustard first? Right. Or like a wine bottle. Oh, he'd uncork it for her? <laughs> what a nice gentleman. Well, he he also has a cane, so it's not – he must have some impairment where he can't just hop up and, you know, get in her face. So instead he's just got to grab whatever's there. So he grabbed the cheese and threw it. What if there was a, a bottle of glue? <laughs> That's not a bottle of glue. <laughs> That's that. That glue it needs will some be, process. It will be someday. By the way, that's a. But you don't. No matter what, you don't throw anything at anybody. You just. You just try to talk to her and say, "Hey, let's not be this way." By the way, I don't know if you heard too. This um, has started a brand new movement. Really? Yeah, it's called the hashtag Cheese Two mm. movement. So everybody now that's been hit by some form of cheese is now starting to. Uh, well, tell their story. I think I think what the man was really trying to tell her is that you shouldn't waste cheese. Waste wasted cheese is a bad thing. In fact, I think you mentioned a PSA. I think we've got it. Yeah. When it comes to cheese, please make every slice count. Welcome back, folks, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's fairly common to come across younger members of generations who who are rejecting the religion of their fathers, right? The religion that's kind of been handed down from generation to generation. Not only are people moving away from religions of their childhood, but atheism has become a frequent substitute. And here to talk to us about it and better understand What's going on with this crisis of faith is a professor here at Brigham Young University. Scott Braithwaite is an associate professor here and has researched the psychology behind this generational shift. Um, He is an associate professor of psychology at BYU. Uh, Dr. Braithwaite, thank you so much for your time and being with us today. Thank you for having me. 
Is it um, t- talk to us just about the general data? I mean, are younger generations uh, falling away at the at the numbers that that we hear? And is it is it is is it a crisis of faith? Um, I think that the answer to that is a little bit more complicated because I I think that you do see some activity rates going down, but what you find more and more is that the rising generation, um, often we talk about millennials, they tend to want to experience religion a little bit differently than their parents have. And I think sometimes what we see is this mismatch between the way that they want to experience religion and the way that it has been offered in the past. Oh, okay. So it's kind of how how they manifest it. I think so. I think that they're looking for something that's just a little bit different. And oftentimes, I think that the the way that we've done it historically doesn't feel like a good fit for younger people. Hmm. And does some of this, I mean, there are there have been a lot of stories of institutional uh, abuse um, in some organizations and the fear of an oppression of, of some religion. Is, is that what's also impacting their view or... Uh, did, did just kind of this freer thinking younger generation come first? Yeah, that's hard to say. I think maybe from a broader, like thinking about, you know, all of North America perspective, there could be some of that. But I think that the generational shift is not so much rooted in their knowledge of this or that um, thing, but more about their, their lived experience of, of what life feels like and what they're looking for when they start to ask, is there something more out there? Hmm. You, um, last year in August, you participated in what's called BYU Education Week, where you, you took on a lot of this information. And um, one of the things you talked about is is this idea of stages of faith that was described by James Fowler, who was a Methodist minister. Talk about the stages of faith, and maybe one of the problems might be the stage that a lot of the a lot of us fall into that might actually drive us to fall away from our belief system. Yeah. So, uh, as you mentioned, James Fowler was a Methodist minister, but also a professor at Emory University, and he had a background in psychology. I'm a psychologist as well, and I think that's where I started to develop an interest in this. The the stages of faith model goes through the different stages that all people go through, and. It's interesting because when I describe it, people ask, wait, is this specifically a Mormon thing? And it's not. It's huh. something that he, he saw across a lot of different faith traditions. The first two are, are a little bit less informative. They have to do with children growing up and starting to believe in the idea that there is justice and reciprocity in the universe. Stage three, though, is where James Fowler says many people um, tend to spend a lot of time. He says many religious people indefinitely stay in stage three. Uh, Stage three is marked by a couple of features. Um, One is this idea of conformity to authority. People in this stage are looking for authoritative statements, and to a large extent, they want to turn their religious life into rules. Hmm. They want to find out what's the right answer, what's the wrong answer. They want to make sure they're doing the right thing. There's a very strong cultural element to religious life. It's very much about who's in and who's out. Hmm. Oftentimes, the world tends to present itself in black and white terms, and most things are seen as us, we're the good guys, the world is the bad guys, and any conflicts with one's beliefs are ignored at that stage because they're afraid of anything that could be inconsistent. So it's very easy to dismiss disconcerting information as just anti-Christian, anti-Mormon, or whatever. And, and again, I'm not here to say that stage three faith is necessarily a terrible thing, but I think that people who are in stage three are at a higher risk to experience a crisis of their faith 
if they happen to come across disconcerting information. And so it, there, are, there are certain, I think, advantages and disadvantages. To be yeah. Well, I mean, if, you're, if your witness, if your belief system is based on conformity to authority and then authority, your authority figures do something wrong or uh, inappropriate, then all of a sudden you would have a faith crisis because your leaders aren't leading you appropriately. That's exactly right. This Again, the overlap here is with the concept that psychologists are interested in called perfectionism. And it's perfectionism applied to a religious institution. In stage three, we very much think the, the leaders of the church, the religious institution, is absolutely flawless. Hmm. And the fact that all religious institutions on earth are mediated through people makes that complicated because there tend to be human fingerprints on even divine work. Oh, interesting. And so if I was raised in a family where my parents were very religious um, uh, and their religiosity was very much based in this stage three, then it might be easier for me to think, ah, oh, yeah, well, no one's perfect and people make mistakes. And so is it, that would that would that make it harder? I mean, easier for me to want to just move on from faith? I think so, because if faith becomes um, an all or nothing thing, I think anytime you set up an all or nothing belief, it always ends up being nothing. Yeah. Because nothing can really hold a candle to this idea of perfectionism except for Jesus himself. And since, again, most of our religious experiences are uh, in the world of people, uh, it's very difficult for anybody to live up to that standard. So if we put that standard up as the uh, benchmark that has to be achieved for a religion to be true or good, um, we're often going to be disappointed. Oh, fascinating. So what ends up, what does stage four and five look like? So stage four is interesting um, in that if you think about it, it is a step forward, but oftentimes it doesn't feel like a step forward to people who are in it. James Fowler would say that stage four is where we experience a crisis of faith. And this is where, to some extent, the, the simple stories that we had before no longer work. Mm. We had a very simple story about the way that faith and the world and people and, and God operated. And because that no longer works, it, it throws people into this state of chaos where they're wondering if anything is true. Not only is anything true, but is it possible for me to know truth from error? I just don't even know. Everything that I've relied on up to this point now doesn't work for me. Um, and in that situation, sadly, what, what my experience often is, is that you'll find that people will then jump out of any kind of faith tradition, hmm. but they'll tend to keep a very stage three perspective. The difference is they kind of switch teams. The church that used to be the good guy is now wholly bad and has nothing good to offer. They, they stay in a very black and white mindset. The reverse swing, yeah. Right. Um, and so in that phase, it's, it's very easy for people to become cynical, but now rigid unfaithfulness is the worldview. Holy cow. And you see this even with a lot of... Uh, the movement of um, gay marriage and other, you know, kind of really heated issues that are in the news, you might see that creates this crisis of faith. Like, ah, yeah. I love I love my fellow brothers and sisters that uh, that are gay and I want them to be integrated into the church. And yet, but it creates the crisis. And you're saying what might happen in that stage is many would then just quit and immediately take their kind of cultural version and conformity version, but just go against the church. 
Right. I think that that's true. I think that when, when we have a hard time reconciling two things that seem opposed to each other, but both are good, loving people and obeying commandments, we have a really hard time reconciling that when we have a stage three perspective. We think we have to pick a team. We think we have to say I'm on this or that side. Interesting. It's a very difficult thing to do. Which, I, which ironic, ironically seems different than something that Christ was teaching. I think uh, so. I able think to right. do both. Yeah, I think so. He he was the perfect example of somebody who seemed to live a life that was loving and caring and lifting other people. Um, and and he was often very critical of people who reduced religion to rules. He wasn't often uh, sharp with his words or with his actions, but he reserved that sharpness for people that he perceived as being hypocritical mm. or people who he felt like were kind of neglecting the weightier matters of the law and focusing on small stakes issues. We're speaking with Dr. Scott Braithwaite, who is a professor, associate professor of psychology here at Brigham Young University, and he's talking to us about the psychology behind the the generational shift toward religion, the view toward religion. Uh, We're talking about some work he's done on the crisis of faith, and today he's talking about these five stages um, of faith that were described by uh, James Fowler, a Methodist minister at Emory University. And so far, We've talked about stage three is kind of a conformity to authority, very cultural. Stage four is where we have a crisis of faith. Um, what would five look like? Well, here's where I, if it's okay, I kind of want to introduce into this idea or into this uh, discussion what I mean when I talk about cultural Mormonism versus doctrinal Mormonism, because I think it yeah. relates to, to it, the difference between these stages here. And does it relate to other churches as well? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as someone who's LDS, I think that this is something I can speak more confidently about, but um, I certainly think it applies. So when I talk about cultural Mormonism, I'm not just talking about that, you know, Mormons like to drink Sprite and, you know, <laughs> Jello. things like that. Yeah. Um, it's more that this is the version of belief that comes from spending a lot of time in the church, from conversations with your peers, uh, church lessons, LDS popular culture and press, just growing up LDS, you get some ideas in your head. And I'm not saying that all these ideas are incorrect, but I also am saying that oftentimes they're more cultural than they are doctrinal. Um, Doctrinal Mormonism, I would contrast that as being the scriptural canonized theology of our church. I think that cultural Mormonism tends to focus more on rules, whereas doctrinal Mormonism focuses on principles. Mm -hmm. I think cultural Mormonism focuses on being right, and I think doctrinal Mormonism focuses a little bit more on trusting God. I think that cultural Mormonism is rooted in group identity, about who's in and who's out, uh, who is okay to be here and who is not. I think doctrinal Mormonism is rooted in Christ and how he invites everybody to come unto him. And for me, the the overlap between the two, because there certainly is overlap, may not be as important as the rigidity of cultural Mormonism versus the dynamic vibrancy of doctrinal Mormonism, um, in that it, it's, it's wild, it's, it's exciting, it's vibrant, it, it helps us to feel closer and connected to God, whereas the other, I think, feels very constraining. And I think that uh, stage three faith is often marked by an approach to religion that is a little bit more rule-governed um, and easier to, to become disillusioned with. Hmm. So I think it's easier if you're very culturally Mormon and, and believing that there, there's a right and wrong answer to every single question that you will ever be posed becomes really difficult to not jump into stage four. So stage four, as I mentioned, um, it's very easy to become disillusioned. I don't think this is a new thing, though. I think that through you know all of religious tradition, having a crisis of faith is 
pretty standard. There are certain psalms uh, that I think are exclusively about the, the writer, perhaps David, just saying, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know how to move forward. The book of Ecclesiastes, I think, is a big crisis of faith. So this isn't a new thing. This isn't something that's unique to millennials, but something that I think we're seeing more and more today. Stage five faith, though, is a little bit different. It's a perspective that's a little bit more comfortable with complexity and mystery. Hmm. Uh, In some sense, we've come to realize that faith really is faith. Faith does not mean that we have a perfect knowledge of God. Faith is that we have an assurance or a hope of things which we believe to be true, but for which we lack evidence. It requires faith. And it tends to view religion from a bigger perspective than a set of rules and an us-versus-the-world mentality. Um, It's more interested in trying to stay close to God, trying to um, love others as Christ did. Wow. It's so fascinating. Um, This was, my, by the way, my church lesson, my Sunday school lesson to 17-year-olds was all of this, Scott, without having any of this. It's so frustrating. You've got to get books out, left and right. <laughs> well, James Fowler has a great book on all of this, but it's, it's pretty dense. <laughs> yeah, I've edited it. That's why we need your help kind of sorting through it. Um, but what can we do as parents? What can I do with my kids if I um, want to try to get them more? I mean, I, I guess the faith crisis is inevitable um, just with life, I would assume, what would we do? What can I do to make sure that we can move them more to kind of a faith level five, uh, where they can, where our kids and our family and people can be more comfortable with the chaos that is inherent in life? I think it has to do with, um, again, focusing on this idea of true principles. You know, Joseph, when he was asked how he governed such a big body of people so effectively, he said, I teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. It's very easy, though, I think, especially when kids are younger, to try to simplify things and to turn them into rules. And, and there are certain rules that I think are really helpful. I think it's important, though, if we're going to teach a rule, that we help people understand the doctrine that undergirds that rule. Yeah. That they don't think that, oh, well, I don't drink or smoke because people who drink and smoke are bad people. <laughs> more so that we believe that God has promised certain blessings if we're obedient to this word of wisdom that we have been given. And although other people may live their life differently, we certainly don't think they're bad people. They're wonderful people. But we believe that this light and truth that we've received can bring extra blessing into our lives. So I think it's about how and and teaching about the why when it comes to certain rules. And it's um, one of the things I'm seeing in my own world is that uh, we a lot of times we don't question we we don't discern the difference between a cultural or a doctrinal um, religion. I mean, our, our position being a cultural position or a doctrinal, and because we never question it, we think we are basing this on doctrine. Um, but they're like, you know, I mean, we every church has something that they would you know that seems sacrosanct, and yet. In reality, a lot of those things aren't even their doctrine. I completely agree. I think that it's so tempting to just let our religion become an oral tradition that is passed down um, just through the ether of society. But I think that we end up with the cultural version of Mormonism when it comes to that. Let me give an example that um, can be a little bit touchy, but I I think it's fair game. Um, I think if you asked people what their beliefs are about the theory of evolution— yeah. If you ask them from a cultural Mormon perspective, they would say, of course we don't believe in that. We believe in God, that there's no way anybody who believes in God could believe in that. Right. 
if you actually read what the church teaches about this, including statements from the first presidency, the official position is that the church does not take a position on the theory of evolution. And then even more interestingly, if you keep reading, you'll find that some leaders have spoken against it. Joseph Fielding Smith, Bruce R. McConkie, Ezra Taft Benson, and others have vocally spoken in support of it, like B.H. Roberts, James E. Talmadge, John A. Witso, even Gordon B. Hinckley. Hmm. And to me, that's not evidence that we're somehow a house divided. It's evidence that we have this dynamic, vibrant religion where we have true principles and we're allowed to think and reason and um, reach some conclusions on our own that we we don't need to try to fill in the blanks where the Lord has seen fit to remain silent um, with our cultural version of things. We need to study and learn and become invested in our religion and develop some thoughts and and beliefs that perhaps are our own. And so I think that that's a healthy part of this process. And, And really search back for the principle. I mean, that seems to be part of the key to this is find the principle upon which all of this discussion has been based, and you'll see that the principles can live even though the debate may be opposed. Absolutely. I think that that's absolutely true. That is powerful. Wow. Well, Scott, um, if this is a, a kind of a global issue, um, really what we might be seeing with some of these young, <laughs> these darn millennials, as they keep getting called, um, is they're just helping us open up our mind. And if we want to reach them, we're going to have to find a way to reach them on their principles. Yeah, absolutely. And full disclosure, according to some definitions, I think I qualify as a millennial. So oh, maybe. see, that explains it. <laughs> Maybe this is why I have all these weird ideas. That's it. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that it's a really normal thing um, across the ages that uh, younger generations help us to think and to ask questions that maybe we hadn't thought to ask before. I think that's a healthy part of the process. I totally agree. Well, Scott, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for your great work here at Brigham Young University, helping us understand a crisis of faith, uh, truly. Um, Again, you have to meet the people where they are. You have to understand them and move out of the difference and instead move into the principles. That's probably where you're going to find the power and you're going to find the ability to... uh, to truly create some unified uh, approach to our religion and our faith. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find your faith. BYU Radio. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Hey, welcome back. You know, um... Dr. Braithwaite brings up a really good point about religion or about life in general. You can always argue your faith. You can always argue your um, your how, how you've been harmed, whatever's happened to you in your life from your position, or you can argue it from your principle. And the, the downside is the minute we argue something from a position, then our positions tend to be at odds. So if you're talking about faith, the positions would be you need to go to church if you want to get to heaven. That's one position. Another position is, no, I would need to just be close to my God. Okay, that's, a, that's another position, right? But the minute you're arguing these positions, positions tend to just stay positions. And is it possible that we instead could get to the principle behind the position? What is the principle that really um, is the key? Because the irony of principles is that we would probably have more agreement on principle. 
Do you believe that people have should have agency? Yes. Do you believe that that there is structure and order in things? Yes. Do you so we could believe in order and we could believe in agency and choice and if we could do that then that might actually explain why we take the positions we do. There is so much more power in teaching people correct principles and then allowing them, right, to govern themselves and learn from themselves and their principles. Oh, well, see, yeah, but somebody has to have the right principles. Well, sure. I mean, I guess the right practice around the principle, the ordained practice around the principle. But um, one of the keys I've just found, in fact, this came up in my fun little Sunday school lesson, is that if I don't teach the kids the principles and instead I just teach them the practices, but they don't know the why behind it, they don't understand the real deeper principle, we set them up for failure because eventually you're not going to be able to delineate every practice in every situation. Something is going to fall because it doesn't fit the model they learned. And I learned that when I left Utah and went to be a a missionary for my church uh, in Argentina in a different culture, a different country with different practices and different beliefs. There are principles. And so if we want to help our children actually secure their belief system, secure their faith, then your children will have to know the deeper principle, not just the positions. You go to church. You shut your mouth. You do what's right. Don't question anything. Um, questioning is probably very healthy if you understand uh, the, uh, the deeper principles as well. There is a, a principle of devotion. There is a principle of faith. And um, those principles still need to be understood and applied. And it'll actually, amazingly, I see it every day when I work with people, the principle itself, even if you're going to teach a practice, make sure that you've taught them the principle Show them that that very principle could also have five or six or ten or a thousand other iterations than the one that we're prescribing for you now. Um, Anyway, it seems to make sense to most of us, except not necessarily in practice. Understanding the principles, using the principles to live a principle-centered life, that's power. Power comes, by the way, in the principle, not the practice. The principle can be used a thousand different ways. The practice eventually may not be used in certain places. It may not be possible to be used. Anyway, just an idea from your coach right here on The Matt Townsend Show. We're back for more empty news from our empty news reporter, Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Jeffrey? So earlier in the program, we talked about the story about the kid that had the screw in the head. And then the screw became loose. So, yeah. Uh, How about a scalpel in the gut? No, thanks. I'm full. Yeah. (laughs) I'm full. It's very nutritious. Uh, So this is the man's name is Glenford Turner. He had a dizzy spell back in March. He went into the VA hospital in West Haven, Connecticut to see what was wrong. Yeah. Right. Right. So doctors ordered an MRI of the 61 year old Army veteran's head. But the real answer, it turned out, was in his gut. According to a federal lawsuit he filed last week in U.S. District Court, Turner was halfway through an examination when a wave of severe abdominal pain hit him. Ooh. The procedure was stopped, and doctors took a closer look. An X-ray image of his midsection showed, to quote the lawsuit, an abandoned surgical instrument in the oh, plaintiff's body. Yeah. 
In other yeah. words, a scalpel. The yeah. same scalpel Turner and his attorney allege that was used in prostate surgery he underwent at the same hospital Ooh. four years oh, earlier. Oh, boy. So uh, his They're lawsuit... supposed to count those instruments. Yeah, I know. How do you how do you lose an instrument in somebody's body and not tell them about it? Well, you wouldn't know. How would you not know? Were you drugged too as the doctor? Well, you would assume that, you know, because you've got instruments coming left and right. Somebody's supposed to be counting scalpel one, scalpel two, scalpel three. Hey, where's scalpel yeah, four? Yeah, where's the inventory process? Yeah. Here's another one. How do you pronounce New Orleans? New Orleans. You say New Orleans? I say New Orleans. New Orleans, there's New Orleans. Yeah. There's New, New Orleans. New Orleans. Yes. So many different ways to say it. If our listeners are uh, hearing this and they know how the correct pronunciation of New Orleans goes, please. We'd, let us, we'd love to know. Tweet us. That's right. At Dr. Matt's show. Nolans. So uh, there, you know, this thing called Carnival mm-hmm. in New Orleans. Carnival. Again, and that's Carnival, not Carnival. Yeah, or Carnival. Carnivali. Mm-hmm. So uh, they were picking up the trash for Carnival, and they discovered 93,000 pounds of uh-huh. Carnival beads Oh, were boy. among the 7.2 million pounds of trash what? pulled from clogged catch basins along a five-block stretch of a downtown parade route. That, five blocks. That's a lot of beads. 93,000 pounds of beads in five blocks. See, maybe it's time. Maybe we have too many beads, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe. Apparently, the people don't want them. What do you replace? <laughs> That's a great point. Maybe you need biodegradable beads. There you go. That once you wear them and the, it rains a couple times, they all just turn into uh, cleaning soap. Or maybe beads that the birds could eat. Oh, Let's li- feed the birds. Yeah, feed the birds. Like Tuppence a bag. Bird seed beads. It's only tuppence a bag. Yeah. Except until you're wearing all these beads and a bunch of crows start landing on you pecking at your neck. Yeah, but that's all part of the fun and craziness of Carnival. That would not be the weirdest thing you'd see there, I can guarantee no, you that. No, definitely not. But it would be one of the scariest. Well, yeah. Anyway, uh, fun stuff. Interesting lessons. Beads, folks. Come on. Feed the birds. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Tuesday to you. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Terry and Jeff, the gang. We're gathered and we're ready for an awesome day. It's going to be a good one. I can already feel because, yes, it is the state of the unium. Why does that make it good? It's the state of the unium. As what? a child, uh, I dreaded this day. This was the day all television would stop. TV was messed up all night. Yeah. You can't fix it. That's why you had to get your fun shows in like Chips. Yeah. Andy Griffiths. Get mm-hmm. those in early. 
Then all of a sudden, cable took off. I'm like, wow, there's other channels, and they're not paying attention to this. Except it also made it so there's 15 channels that cover the State of the Union. Yeah, and it so is. You, yeah, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you just you flip around. You're like, so we could do the network to you. Everyone pretty much has yeah, access let to the networks. Mm-hmm. Do that. Why does everyone have to cover it? And it, it's it's amazing how they're even doing a countdown for the State of the Union. Oh, Every yeah. hour on the hour, but, but it's important. It's the yeah. president of the free world. But they don't even they don't even want to wait until the actual speech. They even want to do a cut of the rehearsal. The United States. There you go. It's not going so well so far. Apparently his Sudafed needs to He's high. sleeping. It's he's very They've sleepy said the there's morning. no new policy that's going to be announced. Well, it doesn't matter. It's, well, it's the, like the, it's the, the president. The importance of it all. It's like really The bigger thing is that there some poor printer Printed the State of the Union tickets and misspelled Union, and it's Unium. See, I saw State the, of the Union. I saw the headline saying the tickets were misprinted, and I didn't even have heart enough to click on it to figure out what word it's was un- spelled wrong. It's, it's just one word, but oh, that's just that thing that you'll you know everybody's done that. You've right. made uh, you've had a typo that was seen by everybody yeah. in the free world, and then most people forget about it except for that one guy. Yeah, the guy. always brings right. it up. Maybe yeah. you could shed some light on this. What? Why is it that we are so obsessed with jumping on the mistakes of other people? Because we we want to hold them down. It's a superiority complex. Yeah, I'm because the Democrats you. never misspell anything. So do we want to hold them down, or Colm do we? Fifi. Are there President uh, Trump's had many errors? Do we feel like we have our own shortcomings? We're yeah. trying to compensate for oh, yeah. that. Oh yeah. But we like we, – we always notice the errors, right? That's the human nature because you make errors. Mm, yeah, I didn't, I didn't make that error. Hmm. It's hard. But that error probably – that error probably has very little to do with the president of the United States. Right. But because it's his address. And that's a souvenir the, from it, I guess. Yeah. 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 All the Late Show Talks guys are talking about it. It's just sad. It's just a state of a union. It's not that big of a deal. See, now he's going to say it. You right. know how when you tell yourself, okay, I can't make that mistake. I can't oh, make that yeah. mistake. And then you make that mistake. Uh-huh. Now he's going to say, he's going to keep, welcome to the state of the union. Boy, wouldn't that be funny? I think he's, I think he's already got it written. Well, uh, no, no, not what's him. What's his name? Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller. wrote it for him. But it's great. And they go over it today. Uh-huh. That's what he'll do in executive time, and he'll nail it. He always does really? a good job uh, in, in executive time. That's his time where he's not president. Well, yeah, but he's got you know he's got a little homework today just because the big speech. Mm-hmm. Tell me how intimidating too to know you're going to walk into a hall where half the people don't like you at all. Half? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess if you're saying the Republicans don't like him, there's a few Republicans that are like. Mm. But he's we could have done better. He's 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 it's got to be a very intimidating day for the first time. Right. The first time you do this is intimidating. Well, he spoke to a joint session of Congress right after he was elected. Yeah. But I think that this is different, isn't it? It's kind of the same thing. This is bigger because this is where some of the Supreme Court justices should be there. Well, and some won't. Yeah. (laughs) Are these scheduled or do they come up as on an as needed basis every year? I think January. No, no, the Hmm. State of the Union's every year. Yeah. It's a – I'm not sure if it's a like like a uh, part of the Constitution where the president has to come and report or whatever, but it's a something that's always done. It's kind of it, – it seems like we could do without it and have the same 
Like we wouldn't lose anything for not having it other than there's this tradition. Oh, but right. no. And because but the president has yeah. such access to be able to talk at all times, right? How how frequently did uh, – was it uh, Roosevelt that did the fireside chats? Yeah. How frequently did that happen? I'm not sure. I don't know. It was enough that people talk about it. Yeah. It's still a big deal. But now with so much access, it's like we already we already know most of what he's going to talk about. But – it's not like he's. We and, always and, do. We well, always know well, what they were going right. to say. They also leak this before, so you get kind of a heads up. Like, ooh, there's going to be. Plus, a huge there's thing the on. positioning of of who are they? Who are they going to have? You know, sitting next to the first lady yes, or the special guests? All the special guests, so they can have a moment where the president yeah. addresses somebody and it's politics as usual. Um, but again, this is this is a special one because this is President Trump's first, maybe of eight of these, and. What? Hey. Why is that? Why did you push that? Hey, it it's the audience. The studio audience it's laughed a genuine at genuine response. That's interesting. It was really delayed. Well, you know, it's early. Yeah. Um <laughs> so I I wish him the best of luck. It's I again right. as a guy that speaks a lot, it's intimidating. And you have to walk in uh what what does the guy yell out? Speaker, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, yeah. the president of the United States. And then he shakes people's hands as people are diving over each other to get over there to yeah. shake his hand. Yeah. That's fine. People, I've, I've, uh, people like uh, members of Congress will get in line so they can sit along that row. Yeah, they want They'll be those. one of the first seats right there so they can reach yeah. over and shake. Well, hand. you want your you want your people to see how in you are. Right, you're so in that you were able to get in line early. Which is another weird thing, that you're so eager to be there to shake the president's hand. Meanwhile, you're thinking, I hate your guts. <laughs> they don't hate. This is, this is just politics. It's a game. Anyway, um, the, uh, lots, of, lots of crazy news going on, too, with the um, Mueller investigation oh, yeah. and the FBI, uh, the, an exit of a controversial big dog in the FBI. Let's get to the headlines with Terry. What should uh, – what should we know about this FBI departure? Uh, so President Trump made an unusual request to former FBI Director uh, Andrew McCabe, who stepped down yesterday. He's yeah. the, as it says, deputy. He was the number two guy at the Very FBI. Very controversial, but probably shouldn't have been. I mean, his his wife ran for a Democratic office. Right. Now, this was interesting. So during this phone call last year, NBC News reported Monday, apparently Lice... Uh, uh, Incensed by the image of James Comey boarding an FBI plane the day after Trump fired him as FBI director, Trump called McCabe, then the acting director of the Bureau, to express his outrage, NBC News reports. McCabe told the president that though he had not greenlit Comey's flight, if anyone had asked, I would have approved it. NBC News, this is their report, uh, that prompted Trump to be silent for a moment. NBC News says before he turned to insulting McCabe's wife, telling McCabe to ask his wife how it feels to be a loser. Oh, wow. McCabe reportedly replied rather neutrally saying, okay, sir. Okay, then, I'll then ask her. the president hung up the phone. McCabe's wife, Jill, was, as you said, ran for Senate in uh, Virginia 2015, losing her bid. An unnamed White House official denied this ever happened. Part of that was because she took a $500 donation from a person who is a friend of Hillary Clinton. Yeah. If you say how that works. So that means, and Trump has said multiple times that that this McCabe guy basically took money from Hillary Clinton. Well, hold on, hold on. Let me get this straight. This is is the same President Trump that actually donated to Hillary Clinton. Absolutely. Okay. So he's mad that McCabe's wife took money from a friend of Hillary Clinton. 
But yeah. Donald Trump actually donated to Hillary Clinton. Yes. And Mr. Clinton. He's been railing on oh, wow. the number two guy at the FBI for quite a while, sure. telling the guy that's the head of the FBI now to fire this guy. This is and- actually, a, I mean, amazing thing, really, that he's a career FBI guy, and because he's in the way, even though... I think the FBI leaders are like, we're fine with you, but right. he's like, I got to get out of here. Well, he's gonna. He was retiring next month, anyways. Oh, was he? So if he leaves five weeks early. He's like, I don't need well, to deal with this anymore. Now he's gonna go work security for some yeah top level a storage facility. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Be the gate guard. <laughs> Good. Other news: Twelve minutes before midnight deadline on Monday, the Treasury Department released a list of 114 Russian politicians. 96 billionaire oligarchs who have prospered yeah. enormously under Russian President Vladimir Putin more than 18 years after his 18 years in power. Congress demanded that Trump administration release the list by the end of Monday as part of the legislation that passed last year with veto-proof majorities uh, in Congress and punishment for Russia's meddling in the 2016 election. It was one of the few things that there was like strong bipartisan support. Really? There was like five people that voted against it in all of Congress. Earlier Monday, the State Department said that the Trump administration would not actually punish anyone right now under the sanctions. The list intends to name and shame Russia's political and economic elite, including just about everyone who has flourished under Putin, including government officials, the head of Russia's top intelligence agencies, cabinet ministers, and the CEO of uh, CEOs of state energy giant Rosneft and other top Russian state companies. So wow. just the who's who of money and power in Russia are on this list, it seems like. And yesterday, Russia came out and said, because of this list, list they're accusing the U.S. of meddling in their elections. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Kind of a flip of the script there a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the Trump administration announced Monday it would resume admitting refugees from 11 high-risk countries after a 90-day security review. But uh, refugees from those countries will now face additional security measures. Homeland Security Secretary said refugees will face risk-based assessments before being granted entry, stressing that these additional security measures will make it hard for bad actors to exploit our refugee program. Huh. So the 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 90-day ban is over, they've reviewed it, and they're letting them back in, but they get more scrutiny. Yeah. Right now it takes two years to get into the country through the vetting process that's going on now. Right. Now they're going to add more to that to make the process even longer. To to, to get, get in legal, the country. to get in legally. Yes, I mean, I guess you just then do it illegally. I guess you can just walk across the border. Still, we still need a wall, right? So. Yeah. yeah. Oh well. Um. Finally, they're making a Mister Rogers movie, and uh, Tom Hanks will be Mister Rogers. Really? Yeah. Does that that doesn't seem to fit? Actually, a lot of people say it does seem to fit because he's he's like America's most liked actor, and you're going to have with America's most liked friend of childhood TV. Mm. Maybe there's a match. So Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers. It's a beautiful day. Yeah, in the neighborhood. So there's. Have you heard of this memo? Which memo? There's a secret memo. <gasps> really? Yes. A House committee created a secret memo. Okay. Putting together, accusing the FBI and the Department of Justice of improprieties. Really? And where where, did, where is a, that memo? Well, the memo, they voted yesterday to release the memo. Okay. Now President Trump has five days to either block the memo or allow it to go public. Okay, yeah. It's a memo. We, uh, You know what? We need a secret memo. Do we need secret memos? We haven't had enough memos. We've had plenty of memos that have been forwarded to everybody in the company here. Yeah, those aren't secret, though. 
So the House Intelligence Committee uh, voted Monday to release the explosive memo, as it's being called, by the FBI agents investigating Russia and the Trump campaign. The panel uh, senior Democrats said, according to the majority, the FBI is under investigation and the Department of Justice. Representative Adam Schiff told reporters after the vote, uh, he said Republicans voted to release their memo but not release a report by the Democrats on the same subject. Oh. Just the politics one side. Again. again, politics. Yeah. Um, they say, uh, he goes, uh, he goes, I moved if the majority were going to release their memo, they released the minority view as well, that they be released jointly. The, he said Republicans vote a partisan move designed to hamper the Russian investigation. The memo will likely not be released for several days, blah, 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 goes on from there. Um, so it's a three and a half page document. It's it, too long. Yes. It just keeps going and going. This Secret, is, This has been raging for, I guess, weeks yeah. in certain media circles. Um, the Democrats say it's, uh, you sort of, the Republicans cherry picked pieces of information to fit a narrative. Right. And so it's like, okay, so what's in the memo? The New York times says that, uh, it accuses, uh, deputy attorney general J uh, Rod J Rosenstein. Right. So you have, you have Jeff Sessions yeah. and his number two, they call him a rod who is a Trump appointee, right? right? Trump appointed this guy. Yeah. And by the way, this is the guy. That appointed Mueller. Right. Which hasn't gone. And then, and then drafted the document to fire Mueller. Yeah. That's what Rosen, That's what, how he's involved in all this, is Rosenstein guy. Okay. The renewal, uh, so what he did was he approved an application to extend surveillance of a former Trump campaign associate shortly after taking office last spring, according to three people familiar with it. Right. So the Obama administration saw this guy, his name's Carter Page, yeah. making a lot of contact with some Russians. So they decided to put him under surveillance. When the new administration came in, Rosenstein looked at it and went, yeah, we better continue this surveillance. That's he's, it. He's the traitor. Well. But he was appointed by Trump. He's his, Trump's yeah. guy, but he's the traitor yeah. for extending this surveillance. This shows that there's a deep state and the FBI is trying to take down the oh, president wow. of the United States. Wow. And it's why the president has been quoted by sources yeah. as saying, why are my guys at the uh, Department of Justice not doing my job? The Trump Department of Justice, why won't they just do what I tell them to? And the people have to explain that it's an independent body it and they work need that to way. follow yeah. through with investigations. Uh, so the memo's primary contention is that the FBI and the Justice Department officials failed to adequately explain to an intelligence court judge in initially seeking a warrant for surveillance of Mr. Page that they were relying in part on research by an investigator, Christopher Steele, who mm. was part of that whole yeah. dossier, right? This is going to go nowhere. But then It's uh, too confusing. As we know, the FBI already knew most of what was in the dossier mm -hmm. because of Papadopoulos, who <laughs> has pled guilty to lying to the FBI. Okay, so... Where does Hillary Clinton fit into this? She's in there somewhere. There's some that emails. Always... There's some email investing. I know that the guy that uh, – I forgot his name already. McCabe that uh, quit yeah. yesterday, he's involved in email investigation too. And so they – Wow. If you look up Rod Rodenstein for his Wikipedia page, the, the little uh, preview it gives you on Google, it yeah. says – Rod Rosenstein's a traitor and should be, you know, someone in and messed with his Wikipedia. And then you go into the actual page and it's it's clean. They, yeah, someone they fixed it, it up. But it's just funny. So there's this uh, web and all, yeah. the whole point is to cause confusion and distrust in any investigation into the current presidency. So it's it's the it's the ballast. It's the balancing counter to the actual FBI investigation of the president. Yes. It's the, the attempt. 
it's so by the time it actually comes out, everyone's tired of it or just dismisses it entirely, and we yeah. just move on. The Trump Justice Department warned that the classified memos released would be extraordinarily reckless, and that they should review it to make sure it doesn't run into any current investigations that are going on. And the well, how would the Trump inv- how would the Trump administration know? Oh, you're not you're talking about like the Justice Department. So the memo is from would, the, the House Intelligence Committee. Yeah. Right, but I'm saying... Right, and they're not sharing the info with the Justice Department. Right. And the Justice Department saying, if you release this and it, it it could expose investigations that are ongoing, we need to see this to make sure there's no problems. <laughs> and the House says, you're corrupted, Trump appointees. Yeah. We can't do this. We can't give it to you. But and we but the, the FBI works for the Justice Department. Yeah. Except... It's part of it. The FBI is corrupt except the congressional reviewers aren't saying they're corrupt they're just saying no they're fighting for the freedom and democracy right. yeah. and they won't release this the, is a tangled web the, that's it's the the whole i've i've ignored it because it's yeah. so complicated but when it came down to accusing their own person that they put into right. office of being a traitor right so now we're just attacking ourselves it seems yeah. like in it's, that situation that's what cancers do okay Cancers eventually turn on themselves. Wow. This, the this faster is, cancer grows, the this, faster cancer the deep, dies. The deep state's very deep. It's way deep. It's everywhere. And um, if you notice, the, the actual swamp hasn't been drained. I think no. they're having a hard time finding the drain. Where's the plug? Isn't it at the bottom? That's Do where they the, usually is keep it, it? Maybe, it's not, maybe it's in the Republican part of the pool, or oh. is it in the Democrats part of the pool? Wow. It's weird. <laughs> Got to drain it. Um, by the way, uh, Tom Hanks will be Mr. Rogers, as I said. There's I some happy note. That's news great there. news. If you yeah. like Tom Hanks, that's great news. Won't you be my neighbor? <laughs> Can you see him in a sweater asking you to tie your shoes? It just doesn't. He seems a little bigger, thicker. Well, sure. Can't it, you see him playing with those puppets? Meow, meow, meow. Wow. What that was that? That was Henrietta Pussycat. Wow. Somebody needs to let the cat out. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about social media and clickbait. What responsibility do the uh, social media providers have to clean up the social uh, world, to stop polluting our media? Interesting guest up next to talk about that. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Social media companies create a lot of money from connecting people and encouraging global conversations, but certain people have found a way to exploit these forums that weaken shared norms of trust and openness. Here to speak with us today about the relationship between uh, social media and the responsibility that social media companies have with their customers and uh, the actual I think, community at large, is uh, Barbara Romsek. She's a professor of public administration and policy at American University and the author of of an article uh, titled Social Media Companies Should Ditch Clickbait and Compete Over Trustworthiness. Barbara, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. We all see it, right? We... We see over and over these arguments, even in Congress, um, about 
about the responsibility of these social media companies and we see the clickbait that kind of draws us into a false story and we hear the screams of fake news. But in your article, you're you're basically claiming that these social media companies, they need they have a big responsibility to to eliminate some of this social confusion or or social waste that uh, we all have to deal with. Uh, yes. Uh, the issues for these corporations are broader than what they have been living by thus far. Uh, they are accountable to their uh, stockholders and their boards of directors, as is normal for any corporation. But what they've lost sight of is that they also have stakeholders, hmm. and those are the American public, their customers, uh, and they have ignored the interests of the stakeholders in pursuit of the benefits for their stockholders. And the way it's played out is that the negative consequences of the clickbait, of the fake news, of the Russian disinformation campaign that we saw so much of in the last year, is that it undermines our social norms for open discourse, our social norms for exchange of ideas, Essentially, it undermines our democratic context, which they need as corporations to thrive. Right. And they make big, big money doing it. Absolutely. Their business model is based on uh, collecting customers' data and selling it to advertisers. Mm. They, they are some of the most, uh, the most successful uh, corporations uh, on the globe. Yeah, and uh, they they hold significant sway economically. What we are discovering is they also hold significant sway on our social norms, on our political mm. culture, and they have been undermining those norms and that political culture. And they they have, and we won't get into it because none of us know it or understand it. They have these algorithms behind the the machinate, the machine of all of this, mm-hmm. that that um, that basically identify how they will deliver content, how they will get information to people. None of us know that, so they keep that proprietary. Now, are you are you suggesting they open that up more? Um, no. What do you suggest? No, it's uh, under, it's understood that's their proprietary information. But what they have to do is be more responsible in the use and the design of those algorithms mm. uh, so that they don't uh, continue to feed the, the bubble process of you, people only hear like-minded ideas so that they, are, they, can, they can adapt those algorithms so that people are exposed to more information. Uh, that's broader than just the other people who think exactly like them. They can uh, introduce greater efforts to verify who's actually posting, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or uh, putting Google information up on Google, that they have to figure out ways uh, that they can stop the fake news. Their algorithms have to figure out whether people are legitimate posters or they're bots. Hmm. Uh, they have to figure out um, whether the information being posted is credible or not. Now, I'm not saying they should be the arbiters of the news. Right. Uh, that's, not what, that's not the case. What they should be is 
arbiters of who gets to post uh, on their website and that the algorithms don't allow uh, terrorist organizations to have their small little circles where they can communicate and nobody else knows about it, uh, That where they have uh, these the opportunity for bots to, to from the Russian uh, bot farms to sow discord by posting media that purposely inflames what uh, are the divisions in our society already. Yeah. is um, And the funny thing about this is they they also even worked with candidates and presidential. I mean, they, they send representatives to help be consultants yes. to our candidates. And then but which is weird because I'm assuming a consultant from Google would have extra special access to um, to the back end algorithms than maybe the average person would. It, I mean, do you think they ought to be that deeply involved in politics? Um, uh, I would like them to have a little more of a hands off. But the reality is they are businesses. Yeah. And yeah. we can't tell them who their customers are. Yeah. So what they need to do is to be providing the kind of information that uh, doesn't undermine the democratic process that they need to thrive. If, if if they've been trying to get into China and they can't because China is a closed society and China regulates the internet. Huh. If they undermine democracy, they're going to find the same problems. They're going to find people saying you can't do this, you can't do that, we're going to control thus and such. And we've already seen uh, in Europe, Europe has taken the tack that these companies are too big and have been wielding their power in ways that disadvantage the public. And so uh, uh, Google just had a huge fine uh, from the European Union, and there is now legislation uh, called the general data protection regulation mm. in EU that says if you uh, Google was found guilty of favoring its own sites over other uh, sites uh, not posted on the Google platform when there was a Google search. So somebody says, tell me what you can tell me about uh, uh, this particular medication. And so then they would go search for this medication on the website, as so many people do, tell yeah. me more. And they would show the sites that were post that were housed on the Google site got preferential posting over the others. And we all see this when we cl- when we look for something on Google, the first page is all ads. If you don't look carefully at the lines, the first page that shows up is all, right. all some advertisement for if it's medicine, that particular medicine. If it's shoes, you see a bunch of ads for people who sell shoes, even though if you're going to look for uh, how do you decide what a good fit is. You don't really, you're not trying to buy something. You're trying to understand, but the ads come up first. Right. In fact, it's interesting that in a way these companies, we, they were always seen as kind of benign nice partners to humanity, helping us just be able to search the internet or be able to connect more with our friends. 
And then, you know, late, uh, that was, I guess, before they were all had these for-profit models. Once they started making money, we now start to see them in maybe a different light. And, and even that they have a different responsibility. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming 10 years ago, we didn't know what impact social media was having. But now we're actually demanding that they that they have a better discourse for us and and do more to elevate our conversation. Absolutely, and we're discovering there are there are all sorts of problems with tech, this technology. Uh, it it allows opportunities for communication with terrorist groups, and mm. this was a problem with YouTube and its videos. And they're addressing that, but there's still more to be done. That it corrodes our democratic norms. The people, the addictive capacity of the, these programs, that they are designed for, to want to have people come back for the second time around. But most importantly, it's the the social pollution, the pollution of our, our social discourse, the pollution of our civic culture. It, you know, we expect when an oil company has an oil spill, we expect them to clean it up. Right. There's a corporate responsibility for the bad impacts you have on, in this case, the environment. And social media companies need to be held accountable for the social impact of the negative impacts on society due to the misuse of their platform. Yeah. Do you see, Barbara, again, we're speaking with Barbara Romsek, who is a professor of public administration and policy at American University. Um, Do you see some companies that are stepping up, that are doing a a good job of at least uh, um, policing themselves? Well, they're trying. Um, They, uh, Facebook, Google, uh, Twitter, YouTube, they've all had their problems. And each one has been reluctant to say it's our fault. Almost always the the first answer is, well, we can't be responsible for how people use our platform. That all we are is a platform company. Right. And uh, they've finally come around. There have been such egregious problems with, uh, you know, the uh, uh, violations of individual privacy on the web, uh, revenge porn, uh, posting of suicide videos on YouTube, uh, the Russian bots uh, on Facebook and uh, the like, and Google's uh, data uh, violations, Uber's data breach. I mean, you can just go on and on and on. They have now come to realize there's a, they, they've got problems. They're just beginning to propose strategies Maybe they've been talking about this for six months, but it's just now they are engaged in a public uh, communications campaign. I'm probably just media relations, where they're trying to explain to the public now, we we get it, we're trying something. And so Facebook has uh, announced that it's going to put up a page that will identify who has uh, bought what ads. Uh, and that they're going to have little pop-ups on an ad that says this was paid for by. Now, you've got to track back uh, who that is, and this is where the media will come in to, to oversee it. Yeah. important role. Because you'll get some energetic uh, investigative reporter who will go on the site and track down who these sources really are. Because, as you know, with political campaigns, 
the names of who paid for this ad are completely opaque. Right. I mean, who are the Americans for X, Y, Z? And we found in the last uh, election, some of those were Russians, (laughs) that they had names (laughs) that sounded like they were American uh, interest groups, but in fact, they were just Russian bot farms. So is that the transparency you're asking for? Um, I mean, you're not saying go open up your... Uh, you know, the back-end tools of your company, so we see all your trade secrets. You're just saying, let us know who's actually advertising. It's almost, yeah, like what, it's almost like labeling of foods. We just, you just want to know what's in each, uh, each news piece. Well, it's not just news. We need to know that uh, they need more transparency so they can be held accountable for the for the impacts of their programs. Mm. So we need information on how they operate, how they handle data. The data privacy issue yeah. is, is as big a concern as the meddling in the election and the erosion of civic culture. Uh, you know, remember there's this sort of famous characterization of what happens on the uh, social media. If you're not paying for it, you're not the customer, you're the product. Yeah, you're being so, sold. Yeah. yeah. Our information is being sold to advertisers, and that's why you can't delete anything. And once it's up on the web, you can't get it off mm-hmm. because they're storing it so they can use it for their research purposes. So we need to know how they handle data privacy. Uh, how do how can we be sure that the information they have isn't being sold and or the parts of information they have of us isn't being sold to people in ways we would choose not to? Yeah. And this is where the European Union is ahead of the United States in that there now is a right to be forgotten in in the EU where you can – they don't make it easy, but you can get information that's on the web removed. Wow. Uh, you, you, have to, you have to go through a process, but uh, you can request uh, a digital copies of your personal information that a company collects – and you can uh, you can petition that you know something you know, an indiscretion when you were 15 years old, uh, or, or maybe something that you did when you were 30 and you'd like the you, you'd like the world to forget. Uh, there are ways you can petition for that to happen. That's not true in the United States. Hmm. So yeah. how they use data, and then how they uh, how the way their algorithms work have negative impacts on uh, the, the civil society. So it's not that their algorithm, that they need to reveal how their algorithms work, but they need to apply their ex- incredible talent to figuring out ways that those algorithms don't allow for the erosion of our civic culture. I think they're smart enough to do it. I do, but too. But they yeah. haven't accepted social responsibility as one of their uh, missions. It's interesting, and it's um, – yeah, they've been able to kind of hide behind just the fact that we're just a platform. Right. But in the end, um, I guess every corporation has to accept some – but I guess this is what has to ha- – we have to force their hand, maybe like we did an oil company after a spill or you know a pharmaceutical company with a drug that wasn't appropriate or healthy. We, yes. we, we, have, to, we have to put pressure on them, it sounds like. Well, yes, and they have to step up and say, we get it. 
you know, they're smart people. Yeah. They need to be smart people who uh, recognize that they have a more complicated responsibility to than just to make money for their stockholders. Yeah. No, I uh, so appreciate that. And I, and I think um, just your conversation, I think, is helping us to elevate that in our mindset. They have a responsibility. And we can't just sit back and say we're their victims. We have to, at some point, push on them a little bit like you're like – you're suggesting. Dr. Uh, Barbara Romsek, thank you so much for your time, your insight. Again, uh, Barbara is a professor of public administration and policy in the School of Public Affairs at American University in Washington, D.C., and we appreciate her uh, her insight on the subject. We will continue uh, discussing how we can be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the program. Dr. Matt here, and uh, along with Terry and Jeff. Boy, crazy numbers. Um, they, they've done a study out of the USC Annenberg Center for Digital Future, mm. and they found that, on average, the average home usage of the Internet is 17.6 hours a week. Seems low. It does seem low. Back in 2000, the average was 3.3 hours a week. Now, just 17, 18 years later, we are up to 23.6 hours a week in 2017. Closer, but still low. So that includes streaming. It should. Streaming, um, uh, social media, I guess. Games. Gaming. Um, but, I mean, the and then f- the ultimate waste of time, YouTube watching <laughs> cat videos. Or Ant-Man trailers that just released and I've been watching it. Really? Yeah. Mm. They throw a Pez dispenser. It's pretty cool. Did you know that in 2010, the people who use their phones to get the internet was has jumped from 23% in 2010 to 84% today? This also follows the trend line of the internet speeds have gotten faster. Yeah. More quality, so it makes it better to use these devices, so you use them more. Have you used the internet at my house? Because things are not faster at my house. That well, is for darn sure. You, you They're probably to, faster than ten years ago. You need to pedal that. Mm. You need to pedal faster. It's like I question that. Yeah, you just pedal. It goes a lot faster. So we're using the internet a lot more, and Facebook, I guess, is part of that as well. So Facebook is trying to change their ways because you know. They they first said they weren't evil, and eh, maybe a little bit, and so they're trying to you know fix it. <laughs> Facebook says it's bringing you more local news stories to your newsfeed, even if you didn't ask them to. <laughs> Starting today, we're going to show more stories from news sources in your local town or city, says Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO. He said in a post announcing the change. Uh, the change means that people who follow a local news publication will see more stories from that publication. I've already seen that. And that people who don't follow local news outlet will see more from local publications. Also, if people in their network are, are sharing those stories. I've seen that. Huh. Both annoying. Uh, Zuckerberg said the move is at least partly the result of the self-guided tour of the U.S. he conducted last year. Many people told me that if we could just turn down the temperature on the more divisive issues and instead focus on concrete local issues, then we'd all make more prog- progress together. All politics is local. So you're going to do that with local TV news? 
Yeah. How does that make any sense? Because they, they put out stories about the national problems that people are trying not to focus on, apparently. Yeah. But that's the problem is everyone would pass a thing about Trump and some yeah. would be anti-Trump and some pro-Trump. And that may not be coming from your local news. It doesn't mind. Our- well, it's coming from fake news, right? It's clickbait stuff. Well, that stuff, the yeah. stuff we were just talking about, all the clickbait, correct. The polarized. But the actual like, announcements from the White House and those sort of yeah. things, maybe if you don't want to see those, and that's kind of what he's talking about is turn down the temperature, yeah. not so much of that kind of content, and it still comes through the local Plus, you too. could always, as we talked about on the show, you could always move to Canada. Oh, yeah. That's a great point. They have Facebook there, too. Oh, they do? Yeah. They would be happy to have us, though. It's a good place. Um, any other news a on few, Facebook? A few months ago, they had a uh, messenger app. Facebook said they're putting out a messenger yeah. app for kids. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is that a good idea? Eh, people were a little que- – they questioned it. They yeah. seemed like, why are you going after kids? Why, why are you trying – are you trying to get them addicted to the service before they can actually – because there's an age limit. Yeah. That it's like 12, 13 before you can actually get a Facebook account. Right. So you, this is for kids before that. So how would they get the account? Their parent, well, they it piggybacks onto their parents' account. So they don't actually have an account. It's like a little side off of their parents' account. And their parents ah. can monitor. It says, so child development experts and advocates are urging Facebook to pull the plug on its new messaging app. This out of the uh, Associated Press. A group letter sent to Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook, argues that younger children, to younger children, the app is intended for those under 13. They aren't ready to have social media accounts, navigate the complexities of online relationships, and protect their own privacy. Hmm. Facebook launched the free Messenger Kids app in December, pitching it as a way for children to chat with family members and parent-approved friends. It doesn't give kids separate Facebook or Messenger accounts. Rather, the app works as an extension of the parent's account, with parents get uh, control of such as the ability to decide who their kids can and cannot talk to. Do you even like the adult Facebook Messenger app? I don't even have it on my phone. I don't even I use do. it. I do. Don't like it. Really? No. I probably check that more than Facebook itself. Do Just because I get a message. That's when Facebook concerns me. Other yeah. than that, it doesn't concern me. I, I, I figure the, the people that really need to get me have my phone number so they can text right. or make a phone call. And if you need to Facebook message me, I'll get it if I turn on my computer. I'll get yeah. it eventually. So I don't know that I like that they want to target my kids. So the letter signed by psychiatrists, pediatricians, and educators uh, and then some children music singer. I'm not sure. And some guy named about. Lenny. No, it says Ra- <laughs> Rafi Kavukian? Kavu- Kavor- Kavorkian? It's not Kavorkian. Whoa. It's not Kavorkian. That, that'd be Distant a weird cousins. twist if Kavorkian <laughs> was involved. A messenger kids is not responding to a need. It is creating one. It appeals primarily to children who otherwise would not have their own social media accounts. Mm. Facebook's response is the app helps parents and children to chat in a safer way. Parents are always in control. There's no advertising in the app. Yeah. So they didn't really address the concerns. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah. Maybe they didn't hear about it on his tour of the country. Probably, but you know what he's, you know what is he had that uh, the tour of the country was his 2016 goal for the year was to visit every state. That was Mark Zuckerberg's yeah. goal. The, the years before he'd learned Mandarin. That's a good goal. right, and then yeah. he went over there and he spoke in front of a conference. Wow, it seemed Mandarin. like it would take more than a year to learn well, Mandarin. Apparently, he's skilled, very gifted. Um, this year, do you hear what his goal was for this this year? Uh, a six pack. Fix Facebook. 
Oh, that's a good golf Which you'd thing. think would be his job. He is the CEO. It's pretty lofty. That Let's sounds like honest. his professional goal. So that's why there's been all these uh, uh, announcements of, we're going to tweak the algorithm. You're yeah. not going to see so much. So only, you know, more about your family and local news. And we're trying to, you know, make it so you don't hate us. You can spend <laughs> more money on our service. But what's great is they know that apparently they at least now know it's broken. Hmm. At first, they wouldn't admit. Now that they're saying, "Yeah, we got to fix it." You don't have to fix something that's not broken. Well, there's been some uh, lawsuits, maybe some federal regulation threatened. And yeah, they Ooh. changed their uh, their tune. Can and that be my goal for 2018? I'm going to do my job. <laughs> oh, that would be the greatest thing uh, ever. Wouldn't that be great? If he did his job. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Oh, my heavens. You're I just got the monster. I just got the chills. So you're going to see more local news, <laughs> okay. and maybe the kids' app isn't for you. Yeah, I don't think it is. Or your kids. My kids are 12, and we've not, you know, they've already got a Facebook account. Don't ask how. <laughs> we have this to get them their account. Hey, folks, uh, we will continue the journey up next, a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. coach would have put me in fourth quarter we'd have been state champions because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner Play ball. welcome back you know as we talk about social media and uh, click baiting and all of these wonderful topics I, I think in the end we we have to make sure that we understand that a you're part of a bigger community when you are involved in these things uh, and so not only the Facebook and, and or Facebook and Twitter and all these bigger companies, they, they need to see that they have a community responsibility. And I think they do, which is why they're making some of these adjustments. But we as users also need to remember that what we are posting is elevating the game or deflating the game of others. Um, so just look at your own self. And, and if you had to grade yourself as well as far as how effective you are – at creating a safe community for everyone else, what grade would you get? And does it matter to you if you create a safe, healthy community for everyone that sees your Facebook feed? Um, because if it doesn't matter to you, then you, you, you probably ought to quit complaining about what these corporations are doing to you. We all have a responsibility, whether we are a corporation or just an individual we all have some impact on those people around us. And I've seen it. You've seen it. These exhausting posts by others that um, are that bring you down, that make you frustrated, that make you want to somehow either delete them or get them off of your feed. And um, I think when it comes down to it, if all of us just paid a little more attention to the impact we have on others, we might truly help. We might engage a more positive uh, experience with those around us. Um, anyway, it's, I, I think if we're not thinking about it, we probably shouldn't expect and rely on everyone else to be thinking about it. So let's all do a little bit more this uh, week to improve our own social media engagement. Turn off your feed if it's not positive for you. Look at it less. You don't have to go to it as much as you do. Anyway, some basic ideas from Dr. Matt, your coach, your guide on the side. We'll continue the show uh, after this break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry as we understand the state of our union. <laughs> what did he say? It was solid? The state of the union is solid? It's is solid, but we... Which we, is a quote. If you, I saw some clips from about five or six other state of the unions from other presidents, and they all say ah, kind of the same thing. Yeah. It was interesting. They did a, and I guess they do it with every president, a bunch of different words that the president uses. United States. There's that one. (laughs) And uh, so we'll get into that today, talking about that. But uh, President Trump goes out and, uh, I mean, I guess it depends, you know, where you sit. Sort of. It it would also, it was a really interesting um, speech. I think he did a great job bringing people and, and like little human vignettes into his speech. Which was criticized, yes. Yeah, but of course it is. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, what else is new? But uh, it's too human interesty. What? Where's well, the solid, you know, public, you know, political meat? I want that. Yeah, it just depends on what you want. This is the same complaint of everybody saying he's not nice enough. He's not human enough. Yeah. He's rude. So he tries to be human, and, and then that he won't gets work beat either. up. Yeah. You can't please everybody a hundred percent of the time. But you can bring in. The real stories of America, which I think a lot of middle Americans wonder when they're ever going to be worried about Hmm. by this body of people. Some are still wondering. Yeah. And so uh, it's interesting. And boy, uh, there's so much to talk about. So we got to – the hard thing is, is how do you – it's Donald Trump. Many Hmm. thought the speech went too long. It was 90 minutes. Yeah. There were two State of the Unions longer. Both were Bill Clinton's. Yeah. Um, I heard some people talking. It was like 5,500 words or whatever, however long it was, which in comparison to Clinton, Clinton got more words out. Oh, yeah. Trump, his pacing was just, slow. It was very slow. So he took more time to yeah. you, to cover less words. But st- you know. If he spoke at his normal rate, they yeah. would have been out in 45 minutes. How many pauses were there because of applause or a people lot. standing up? Ugh. No one's broke that down yet. That is. That I've seen. That's just a lot of work. And they'll do it because, yeah. you know. It's the internet, and it's on all the all day long. So we got to fill it. And it's a really weird thing because you could tell Democrats were peeved at a lot of things he was saying. Right. So then you've got to decide. Oh, am I, so am I going to stand for the soldier who risked his life and kill? Oh yeah, I'll stand for that. <laughs> uh, even though then he'll bring up a topic about or like um, you know immigration, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to stand for part of what he's saying, but he'll give an immigration example right. where people lost their family, and uh, I better stand for that. But I'm not going to stand. It's a it's even, it's got to be really a difficult. Even decision. Speaker Paul Ryan sitting behind the president had a issue because they talked about uh, paid family and medical leave yeah more robust than what we have now and he just kind of sat there while everyone else cheered he's like oh well by the end by the end were people standing up just because it was the end and everybody else was doing it it was time to go anyway probably they i think they just wanted this thing to end Hmm. but what i was amazed at too is his discipline his ability to actually stay at that pace and not change like so he he didn't seem to come in and out of he his, read, his normal Trump. He read the speech somebody else wrote well, is what yeah. you're saying. Well what he did, honestly, is something you don't see him do. Stand and read something, Sh- yeah. Show discipline. <laughs> well, sure. 
and the ability to actually because how many times even in other speeches does he throw something in? Oh yeah, it's a little snarkier that you can see wasn't or on script. He just cuts pieces out, yeah. and later on they go, "Well, here's the actual thing he was supposed to say, and he didn't say that." Yeah. So anyway, I'd, I mean, it was I thought it was better than I imagined. Well, there's a bar. He cleared it. Yeah. Can we ask for anything more? No. Uh, so let's get to the headlines, Terry. Uh, dissect it for us. What else should we be knowing? President Trump detailed his four pillars of immigration reform on Tuesday night during his State of the Union address, claiming it was a down-the-middle compromise, one that will create safe, modern, and lawful immigration system. So we'll see. Hmm. The pillars include offering a path to citizenship for 1.8 million undocumented young people brought to the United States as children. Now, the original DACA agreement was 800,000. Then they, he, then he, uh, they, uh, Stephen Miller and him put out a deal last week. It was 1.5 million. Now it's up to 1.8 million. It's almost 2 million yeah. undocumented young people. Wow. With the path to citizenship. With the path to citizenship. Building a wall along U.S.-Mexico border, hiring more border agents, ending the visa lottery, and ending chain migration, which he said protects the uh, the, the nuclear family. Which he got a little boo there. Didn't he get a boo on the chain well, yeah. migration comment? Yeah. So Trump said the United States has outdated, uh, has outdated immigration policies, needs more merit-based immigration with skilled people who want to work, who will contribute to our society, and who will love and respect our country. Hmm. Interesting. Which is the controversial part, because then it turns into... Yeah. How, who's What what equates to... Merit. Merit. What are but we looking for? Interesting, too, though. He kind of called the bluff of a lot of Democrats. Like, here, there you go. Sure. Make it happen now, folks. He also wants $25 billion for that wall. Oh, sure. And that's a... Sticking point. So yeah, all yeah. these things are, will be negotiated. Well, and talked walls about. are expensive. I could do it for twenty-two billion. Though. I do it for twenty billion. There you go. Ooh, uh, can you uh, beat nineteen? That? Uh, Seventeen billion dollars. All right, you got me. So we'll get back to this in a minute. But moving on to other issues, Trump's attorney, according to CNN, they're arguing that special counsel Robert Mueller's team has not met the high threshold they believe is needed to interview a president in person. According to a source familiar with the ongoing deliberations, despite the fact that Trump himself said he is looking forward and would love to meet with Mueller, he did say any interview would be subject to my lawyers who believe that Trump should not be required to do that. Sources said this is an ongoing negotiation and the position by the president's lawyers is not a final stance. Right. They're trying to figure out a way out of him talking to the... But he's, hey, I'm totally willing to do it. You just have to meet the standard that would say it's worth my time. Except this would be a great argument if he were the president that was in the Oval Office working all day. Right. But when you're up doing executive time, yeah. tweeting in the morning, there's several hours. There's obvious time for your day. In other news, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein and FBI Director Christopher Wray were among the top Justice Department officials who appealed directly to the White House, to White House Chief Chief of Staff John Kelly Monday, advising him against approving the release of the controversial memo crafted by Representative Devin Nunez of California, the Washington Post reported. The memo allegedly outlined surveillance abuses on parts of the FBI and Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee voted Monday to make it public. And to keep the Democratic response to that private. Right. Uh, According to the Post, Rosenstein argued that the Justice Department was not convinced the memo accurately describes its investigative practices. Kelly reportedly told Rosenstein and Ray that Trump still wanted to release the memo, but that a White House review process would be set into motion before any official release. 
maybe typos, as we saw from yeah. the uh, the tickets from it, the it State happens. of the Union. It's you got to just make normal sure. Normal business. As Trump left the chamber, TV cameras caught him telling Representative Jeff Duncan of South Carolina he's 100% favoring uh, releasing the classified Russia memo. He goes, oh, yeah, don't worry, 100%. Trump said, waving a hand when Duncan told him to release the memo. <laughs> it's on tape. They have it. So oh, yeah. Happens. 100%. Oh, yeah. And finally, uh, birds of a feather may flock together, as this says. The United Airlines recently shot down a traveler's request to bring her emotional support peacock on a flight departing Newark <laughs> Liberty International Airport. Yeah. Um, so the, even though the unidentified woman claimed that she had a second ticket for the bird, the airline denied her request. A spokesperson for United tells Fox News that the traveler with the peacock, they were told they would not be able to bring it on board. Apparently, the woman called ahead and said, I have this support Peacock, can I please bring it on the airplane? And they're like, wow. no. Mainly, they said the animal did not meet guidelines for a number of reasons, including its weight and size. And its plume. And the plume. The plume, it's like spreads out over yeah. five seats. Once And once that thing pops open. So Ooh. They say, we explained this to the customer on three separate occasions before they arrived at the airport, and they still showed up and made a oh, thing about it. Wow. This comes on the heels of Delta's controversial crackdown on emotional support and service animals. Did they pull the thing off with the police? With the peacock screaming all the I don't know. The, all, all the, the photographs, you see them like the, the normal airline waiting area, and there's this bird sitting up on like <laughs> seven chairs because the tail's hanging it's out It's so end. hard because people need their comfort animal, but their <laughs> comfort animal can't make everyone else uncomfortable. It just seems like this woman is thinking, what is the most ridiculous thing I could try to get onto this airplane? When do we get the porcupine? The oh, support ooh. porcupine. That's going to be an ugly day. Aren't those pretty soft when you when you don't touch the pointy end? Yeah. You mm-hmm. just have to make sure you stroke them the right direction. I, cu- <laughs> I cuddle with the quills. That's what I do. Oh, wow. Okay, okay, back to last night. Yeah. Two polls taken right after President Trump's first State of the Union address Tuesday night um, found that a majority of viewers had a positive reaction to the speech. A CBS News poll, 75% of respondents approved of Trump's speech, while 25% disapproved. A CNN poll found that 48% had a very positive impression of the speech, 22% had a somewhat positive, 29% had a negative response. As with every mm. State of the Union address, the president's supporters watched the speech in a disproportionately high number relative to the U.S. electorate. Huh. And the CBS poll, for example, 52% of respondents were Trump supporters. Yeah. Eager to get out and support their guy. He, yeah, Whereas he if you're not a supporter, it's probably it. a greater chance maybe you don't want to jump in and be yeah. all active on polls and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of interesting. White House aides foreshadowed a unifying speech. That was the word we heard yesterday. We're going to yeah. unify the it's country. Be a speech. Yeah, unifying Trump himself talked about this at a traditional pre-State of the Union luncheon with TV anchors. Oh, really? Where he called out NBC's Chuck Todd as a monster when he is interviewing <laughs> you. And then went after, uh, who did he go after? I forget. There was somebody else he went after calling him. He, oh, um, the guy that does NBC Nightly News. Oh, uh, Lester Holt? Yeah. Le- remember, Lester Holt had the interview you where they asked him, said- why did you fire James Comey? And he said, well, because of the Russia thing. You should have just oh, said yeah. Dateline. Yeah. Lester Holt. So, but but he said that, and and Trump said he he edited the video maliciously or something. Oh, yeah. 
and Holt's like, it ran online. We ran the interview. I'm not sure why this is a concern now. And then yeah. he bragged about how much money NBC paid him for The Apprentice because that's what he does <laughs> in these meetings. Mm. That's kind of what they talked about. Well, that's what you got um, So NBC's Chuck Todd said he thought the theme was oversold, the unifying theme. Of because course, I expected yeah. a lot more, actually, a lot more outreach to Democrats. Just right. More, if you're going to unify, then let's unify. Chris Wallace from Fox said something similar on Fox News. He goes, I'm surprised the way the White House sold it because we kept hearing all day it was going to be a bipartisan speech. And he didn't, Chris Wallace from Fox News didn't well, feel it was bipartisan. Well, of course it was. He, <laughs> he's going to, he's going to fix immigration. Okay. I just they didn't they they didn't bipartisan hit, hit their issue. threshold I guess you could it's say. It's going to reopen Guantanamo. Chris Matthews on MSNBC said it was so, it wasn't aimed at the Fox audience crowd at all, not at all. There was none of that sort of uh, white or right wing uh, theme as he usually sells. So he says it, it felt more bipartisan. Is what yeah. Chris uh, what Chris Matthews said. Nicole Wallace from MSNBC said um, that it was it was Trump trying to shore up and win back his base. So she's, uh, Van Jones on CNN said the speech was sweet-tasting candy with poison in it. Oh, wow. Van so, Jones. But Van Jones is no fan. So, so. so it's like he's, he's like the guy. So Donald Trump's the guy in the van giving candy out that's going to poison people. Jake Tapper mm. on CNN says what we saw was Trump with one hand reaching out to, his dem- to the Democrats, the other hand holding up a fist, and this almost is the conundrum of Donald Trump. See, yeah, but these people never were tr- for Trump. No. So all their comments are going to be negative. Representative uh, Luis Gutierrez of Illinois, a Democrat, I was able to come up with uh, this compliment, sort of. He says, although I disagreed with almost everything you said, for Trump, the speech was clear and well-delivered. Whoever translated it for him from Russian did a very good job. Wow. Ooh. <laughs> now, that's just uh, mean. That's just – see, this is this is why he people don't trust the press. And finally, the website PolitiFact. Yes. The, it crashed oh, it 40 did. minutes into the State of the Union. Really? Now, PolitiFact is ran by reporters from the Tampa Bay Tribune. Okay. Or the Tampa Bay Times. So they're in there doing their job. They're fact-checking the things said during the State of the Union, and the website crashed 40 minutes in. They stayed up on Twitter to keep everyone updated on you know what's going on. Yeah. And uh, after a while, the, about six minutes, it came back online. Wow. Mm. So the website crashed because people were like, ooh, we got to check that. Everybody was into it. In fact, um, what on Washington Post, they put together a list of all the words that Trump used in his State of the Union that had never been used in a State of the Union before. Whoa. It's very interesting. The word amputations, booby-trapped, Cajun, crutches, Hmm. legend. Isn't that weird? Legend had never been used by a president in a state of the union. Hmm. Legendary, apparently maybe had, but not legend. Uh, Motto, opioid, paramedics, revving, spine, Timeless, Tormentors, Toyota, Mazda. Can I ask a question? All his words. What does this say about us that we're compiling lists like this? It's it's actually fascinating. They have a database and people can type quickly. But what else is cool is you can go back and you can see, I think it was um, President Clinton was the first president to say HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's interesting. George Bush used more words about terrorism. That then when you see President Obama come in, certain words were never used. ISIS apparently was never uh, – like was not on the list of words he would use, other words like that. So he, it was interesting. So they choose their words carefully. Now, uh, many would say Donald doesn't. 
on Twitter and when he's just speaking. But, but people choose his words for him carefully. You're wrong. They try. It was a very um, – I, I thought it was very – it was very appropriate Trump. Appropriate He Trump. wasn't wow. too bombastic. He no. didn't – he didn't have too many backhanded compliments. I mean, or just backhanded backhands. He right. Didn't, right? I mean, I, I didn't see the whole thing because I was involved in a basketball game. As was I. Um, Wait, what? Till it got out of hand. And oh, like, there was a really I interesting... I thought you were both playing a basketball game. I kind of was. But the Utah Jazz, not, not to brag, but they beat the Warriors last they, night. They have these new jerseys. They look ridiculous. No, I don't look, like they them. Don't, I wanted to see like, how they looked on TV. It has a new. They have a new basketball floor that goes with the jerseys. I was like, this is really overdone. Yeah, that's all good. So I turned it on. I'm like, wow, they're they're leading the best team in the NBA. And then it just kind of pulled me away from the State of the Union a little bit. And then I kind of went back and forth. So. Uh, listen to this. In 2015, Obama became the first president to say the words bisexual. Lesbian, transgender. Hmm. In 2002, Bush introduced words such as bioterrorism, caves, jihad, and firefighters. Hmm. Words that had never been used by a president. Wow. Hmm. But it does show that we are really – we have too much information. Yes. Is it just trying to stretch to get anything to fill content online and – on our shows? No, I think some of it is now we have technology that we can enter everybody into yep. a database and we can now sort words. Wouldn't it be neat to know what like what were George Washington's words that he used? Well, his first speech introduced a lot of first-time words. Corn. <laughs> Corn. <laughs> you know, and this Wheat. is a, this isn't the only place we see this. We see it in sports. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh, that's the fifth home run that he hit at, at this ballpark yeah. on a Saturday. With 40% barometric pressure. Right. <laughs> well, they know all that. And, yeah, it's it's just filling time, but, I mean, there's time to fill. Yeah, that's that's the Especially key. in baseball. If we, yeah. <laughs> Baseball's got a lot of time. Many say there's nothing but time in baseball. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. So So that's all done. Now we get to see if anything happens. Well, uh, the other theme, I guess, from the coverage last night was how long until he tweets and then ruins any sort of good nature that came out of this. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Just blows up his whole process as he just continues with the tweets. Uh, Interesting thing. Melania, sitting in her special seats, the first lady's seats and the first lady box, whatever they call it, Mm. but had all of the other guests around her. Mm -hmm. So she got a lot of airtime. I mean, well, just standing there clapping. It helps when you wear white. Yeah, she she's yeah she did kind a of draws job. the eye in there. I yeah. wonder what she's thinking because I know that like, when my wife watches me like do a speech, it, it's actually really endearing because she still laughs at my jokes even though I've told them like <laughs> five hundred times. Do wow. you do you vary the way in which you tell Sometimes, them? Sometimes, yeah, okay. But I always watch her, and when she laughs, I know that hey, that was funny. Because why would she keep laughing after 27 years? Yeah, you'd think the humor would wear off. Like yeah. she'd see it yeah. coming and be like, Ugh. Or she's so warped. But um, so it's got to be. I wonder what Melania thought. Wouldn't it be great if you could go interview Melania and she could be, well, you know what? He practiced for a week straight. We're so proud of him. Good job, Donnie. Wouldn't Isn't that, that the best gauge for how successful we are? Check, check your what are Yeah. What are our wives thinking? Yeah. Or what aren't they thinking? You know? Like. What if she had? What if she had been dozing off through the whole thing? 
Ooh. That would be bad. Uh, we didn't talk about it. We'll get to it, I'm sure, next hour. Super blood, blue blood moon crosses the sky last night. What? Yeah, a rare super blue blood moon dazzles the sky. Blue mm. moon. Yeah, it happened last night. And apparently you can only see it in certain parts of the country, right? Um, I mean, in full blueness, I guess. Do you guess. have pictures of that? Yeah. But it's going to cost you. Mm. Um, can I just look it up on my computer? Yeah, you can just look okay. it up on yours. That that would be totally free. Um, anyway, so we'll get into that. So if you wondered what's going on with the moon last night, it's just no. It's blue, and that means probably the end is near. It looked full. Yeah. I didn't notice any blue tinge to it. Um, I don't know why they call it super blue blood moon, but uh, we'll explore it. Straight ahead, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Imagine the most irritating person in your workplace, okay? Why don't you like them? Do they do anything that drives you nuts? Today we're going to learn how disagreeing more at work can actually help relieve workplace tension and personal stress. Here to speak with us uh, today about the topic is Amy Gallo. She's the author of the Harvard Business Review's Guide to Dealing with Conflict. She's also a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review. And Amy, we're honored to have you. Thank you so much for your time. I'm glad to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. So you actually are proposing that we, I guess we need to disagree a lot more at work instead of just, instead of feeling disagreement and running from it. That's exactly right. I I work with people and organizations all the time. And one of the things I've seen, particularly in, in U.S. organizations these days, is that people are just terribly afraid of disagreeing. Um, I think the political climate has created a situation in which you know, we expect people, we expect to spend time with people who see eye to eye. And I think we really just don't have the skills to productively disagree any longer. Yeah, no, I see it a lot with couples. And, and it's in a way, it's scary. It's even scarier maybe at, at home because if, if we disagree, then we must not be meant for each other and our marriage must not be right. But we still don't have the skills, do we? That's exactly right. I mean, I think that's the problem is people equate disagreeing with incompatibility. So, you know, to bring it back to the work context, although I certainly could talk about the marriage context. (laughs) Yeah, we all could, um, yeah. In the work context, um, you know, we think my boss doesn't disagree with me or doesn't agree with me, you know, she wants to fire me or I don't agree with the senior leaders at this organization. This probably isn't the right job for me. You know, we really catastrophize this idea of not seeing eye to eye. Now, do you think this has been... Is this new to this generation, to, to, to all of us? Were we more okay with conflict back in the day, or is it something we're just having more conflict and we really don't know what to do? Well, I think I don't, you know, I haven't seen research that shows that conflict, we've gotten more conflict diverse. Yeah. I think um, one of the issues is that workplaces have gotten more diverse. There are more women in the workplace than there ever have been. Um, there are people from different backgrounds. And when you bring in people with different perspectives, you're going to have more disagreements. 
And I think we've become unequipped to handle those, especially um, across diversity lines. We feel especially uncomfortable disagreeing with someone who's not like us. Mm. Before we get into knowing and, and figuring out some skills from you, what what are the benefits to conflict for those that are thinking there is nothing that's good that can come from a conflict? Yeah. Well, let me make clear first that I'm not talking about unhealthy conflict. So when yeah. someone tells me my workplace is full of, of disagreement and what they mean is backstabbing, you know, fragile egos, threats, you know, that is not healthy conflict. But I see lots of benefits to conflict where you disagree openly, transparently, and with respect and empathy. And those benefits include, you know, first and foremost, better work outcomes. When you and your coworkers push each other to come up with better ideas, you know, you're going to, that creative friction is likely to lead to new ideas, new solutions, might even change your mind about mm. something important. Boy, other, what would another, that do if all of a sudden we not only were getting better results, it actually might decrease the tension? Right. I mean, imagine, yeah, imagine. And that, and that's the, I think that's the, one of the fallacies is that people think if I get along with my coworkers, we're doing good work. And that's simply not true. Certainly, you don't want to disrespect your coworkers, but we're not talking about respect. We're talking about saying that, you know, I see this a different way. I have different information. I've made different assumptions. Those are really safe ways to say, let's talk about um, what you seem to think is the right answer and what I think is the right answer and see if we can come up with something that's even better. Mm. What are some other ways uh, that it benefits us? Sure. So another one is, is the opportunity to learn and grow. So, you know, as uncomfortable as it feels when someone challenges your ideas, it's an opportunity to question, am I seeing this the right way? Is there a new perspective I haven't considered? And when you listen and incorporate the, that feedback, you gain experience, you try new things, you especially evolve as a manager. That's so good. And um, I, I assume, too, uh, if we the, – the, I always teach people that if um, a conflict is really an opportunity to strengthen a relationship, because if you can get through it, some pretty powerful things can come out of it, including making things better between you. Yeah, that's especially true. I mean, I'm sure you see that in the marriage context all the time. Yeah. Anytime you can get through something really big together, you set the precedent that it's possible – for us to have good fights and we can move on because you're going to have fights. Interact, you know, disagreements is a normal, healthy part of interacting with people. The key is not whether you have them or not, but it's, uh, you know, whether you can get through them. I have friends who will brag, oh, my husband and I never fight. Mm. And I think, well, that's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, what, what? You know, that's not a good thing. You know, and even my 10-year-old daughter knows this, right? She, she came back from a sleepover with her best friend, Sophie, and told me, that she had a great time because they fought the whole time. And I thought, well, huh? that's no sense. Yeah. <laughs> right? And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, we fought about the movie. We fought about, you know, what, um, you know, what time we should go to bed, where we should sleep, which sleeping bag. And, and I said, well, what happened? She said, well, now we're BFFs. And so she really understood intuitively that what we're talking about, that when you get through a difficult disagreement with someone, you feel more close. And it's true in the work context, too. That's interesting, because you also cite the fact that um, one of the benefits is higher job satisfaction. We feel we like our jobs more when we can handle conflict. Yeah, and research has, has shown this. There was a study of American and Chinese employees in China that showed that using certain approaches to handling conflict 
ones where you're being collaborative, you're focused on how everyone can win, um, increases an employee's happiness at work. And it makes sense because if you think about it, if you feel like you can be open and honest with your coworkers as opposed to constantly trying to, you know, be careful not to disagree or hurt their feelings, if you can be open and transparent, you're going to be much happier to come to the office. And that, that leads to the last benefit, which is an inclusive work environment. So, you know, people will say diversity leads to innovation. That's one of the reasons for having an inclusive work environment. But it, it will not lead to innovation. People will not share new ideas if they don't feel like they can share their perspectives mm. without being um, reprimanded or without being told, you know, we don't disagree here. That's so interesting. And um, especially where we see all this talk and data about disengaged employees. I mean, you wonder how many of those people are just disengaged because, you know, they've tried to push back. They've tried to give their ideas. Nobody seems to listen. They don't know how to get their point across. So I'm going to quit yeah, trying. I hear, I hear it all the time with people I coach that they say, you know, they don't want my opinion. You know, I've been told over and over, unless you're on board with this program, I, you know, don't bother speaking up. Mm. And it's it's incredibly demoralizing um, to be in that situation. And then they're like, yeah, but we really want your ideas. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. We have this new innovation effort. Please, you know, send us all your ideas, but not ones that aren't what we already have told you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we want the right ideas. Exactly. And that's, <laughs> that's you know, you have to remember, organizations are made of people. Right. And, right. And I am the first to admit I love when people agree with me, right? It feels so good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's nothing better than talking to an audience of people <laughs> when they're nodding their heads, right? right? Or, and someone says, oh, my God, I see it the exact same exactly. way. Exactly. Right? So, you know, we have to remember this is all about ego, and leaders especially have to find ways to encourage people to disagree, even if it feels uncomfortable. So what do we do um, if if we are one of those that – Boy, the whole idea of conflict, of bringing up contention, you know, of going against the grain, if it terrifies you, what are some things we can do to be better at it? Yeah, well, first first and foremost, I think we need to focus more on feeling and giving respect at work as opposed to being liked, right? We, we, we put a premium on likability at work. He's, he's a great guy to work with. I get along with him well. Really what we should be aiming for is respect, because when you respect someone, then you can open, openly disagree. And as a manager, it's really, I know I've felt this in the past myself, it's really um, easy to focus on, I want this person to like me. I want the people I work with to think I'm a good manager. But being a good manager isn't about being the agreeable person. It's about being someone people can respect and can trust to tell you the truth. Yeah. Wow. Um, again, just so everybody's up to speed with us, we're speaking with Amy Gallo. And Amy, is uh, she wrote a wonderful article in Harvard Business Review. She's a contributing editor there and um, also is the author of HBR's Guide to Dealing with Conflict, the how-to guidebook about handling conflict professionally and productively. Right now, she's, uh, she's uplifting us, uh, Amy, really, because I – I love because I feel like I've been telling I've been saying a lot of what you're saying just in my work area. But um, there, there is something about we a lot of us tend to be pleasers. We want the star on our forehead. We want, you know, people to like us. Um, but you're saying maybe focus more on 
feelings and uh, and how others feel about um, things and how you're feeling about it, but also give respect. Make sure that respect is coming out. How how do I shift? How do I shift to caring more about if they respect my ideas and my approach rather than liking me? Yeah, I think one of the things is really rely on those emotional intelligence skills, right? So focus a lot on self-awareness and think about, you know, take your next three interactions with your team or with individual team members and ask yourself, what's motivating me here? What what am I worried about? Am I worried that they're not going to like what I'm going to have to say? Or am I more focused on on respect? And if I was focused on respect, what would I say differently? Hmm. I think it's really about trying to reframe the interactions you ha- you have with people. The other thing is, I think, emulating others. So find, re- trying to remember, I have a, a boss in my past who, to be quite honest, I did not like very much, um, but I respected him. Hmm. And that was, in, and I think about him a lot. What would he have done in this situation? Because he could have cared less whether I liked him or not. He was interested <laughs> yeah. in what was best for the organization, what was best for our team, and what was best for our client. And I respected that. Well, that's interesting. That is uh, just being able to take that other perspective. What and also the question: What would I say if I if it was about respect? If I was just trying to show respect? I mean, I would say things that I might not normally say. Right, and you might be more honest. You might be more transparent. And this isn't about you know brutal honesty. This right. Is, you'd still need to consider people's feelings, but. If it wasn't about you, what if it was really about the other person and the work and the team and the organization? What would you do differently? And and from some of my clients, when they're really stuck on being liked, I tell them, think about what if you didn't care at all? Yeah. What if you didn't care at all about whether this person liked you? What would you do differently? Mm, that's good. Great advice. Uh, what else can we do to, uh, to, to move on and, and, and handle conflict better? Well, I alluded to it just a moment ago, but one of the things is that makes us avoid conflict is a real self-centeredness, thinking about the organization or the work revolving around us and our feelings when really there's all these other people and you're all there to do something good for the organization. That, that presumably is, is your um, task. So if you could focus on that big picture, what is best for the organization? What are the business needs? right now. Because me, you know, getting along or agreeing in this meeting is not necessarily what's best for the organization. So sometimes you really have to sort of pull up, take a helicopter view and say, what would be best for the business? And oftentimes that requires speaking up, disagreeing with others, even pushing. And sometimes that means disagreeing with someone who's more senior than you, which is really difficult to do. Um, But, you know, if it's what's best for the organization, most people will respect and honor that. Well, yeah, and especially if you're tying it to already stated objectives and the big picture, the big mission, the big purpose of the company, it seems like you'd have more leverage. Exactly. It's not and an opinion. Yeah, it's not a, it's it's, you know, and you can and really you don't have to frame it as I disagree with you, right? You can yeah. say I have a difference of opinion or I'm seeing it slightly different or differently or could we have a debate about this just to make sure this is the right path? You know, really focus on words like debate rather than disagreement or conflict. Those words can get, make people really squeamish. How about, how about you are so wrong? <laughs> Don't do that one. No, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> okay, good. I'm writing that down right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Well, and actually, that's, I mean, obviously, you didn't mean that. But you did one thing. You, you positioned that as exactly what you're not supposed exactly. to do, not only because it's accusatory, but it starts with the word you. You. Right? right? You should always, when you're disagreeing with someone, always focus on your opinions, your feelings. I have a disagreement. Would it be okay if I shared my viewpoint? Yeah. Um, you know, it really or, does make it, it makes it, it's just one more idea. It's just another yeah. idea. It's just my idea. Exactly. Exactly. This isn't about you and I being entrenched in our, our positions. This is about you and I being at the same table trying to solve this together. Don't you think some people um, actually sense that if you disagree with me, you're being mean, you're being <laughs> unkind? And I talk about this comes up in, in my marriage sometimes. Yeah. And you're being so mean. I'm like, no, I'm just not agreeing with you. <laughs> yeah. It's just different. Um, and yeah, absolutely. And I think that's partly, I mean, partly it's because of our mindset that we assume disagreement means unkindness. But it's also because, um, you know, of the way people, people disagree. Sometimes people are so uncomfortable with disagreeing that they come out with things like, you're wrong. Um, you know, or they're, you know, aggressive or accusatory. And it, it doesn't have to be that way. This is, if we had the right skills to have these conversations in a constructive way, disagreement would feel much more kind. And it can be kind. Sometimes it's it's the kind thing to do. Mm. No, I mean, and you would, I mean, you know, if, if what you're doing is going to not work, you know, being different and pushing back and disagreeing is the kindest thing on earth you can do. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, if, if a friend tells you, you know, I'm going to go jump off a building, right, you're not going to sit, like, you're not going to not disagree, right? There, that's right. A, right? And, yeah. and that's an extreme situation, but you, you know, think about it that way. What's at stake? And so oftentimes, it's, I know this from, from research around um, ethical decisions at work, we assume the uh, risk of acting is much greater than the risk of not acting. We put a lot more um, emphasis on what would happen if we do something. But really what ethics experts say to do is ask yourself, what are the risks, ask yourself first, what are the risks of not speaking up? Because often those are more important and greater than actually doing something. Oh, yeah. No, that's great. What are the risks of not doing it? And if, if we really struggle with this, I, I know one of the things in the article you point out is then find somebody that's good at it and just right. follow their lead. Yeah, and I, I, have, a, I have a coworker who, who told me that she actually pretends that she's an actor um, playing the part of someone who's very comfortable with disagreement. Huh. She is incredibly conflict-averse. So she knows if I act like myself, I'm just going to project discomfort. I mean, the conversation's going to spiral out of control. So she goes in and says, I'm an actor who is very comfortable with um, disagreement. That's great. Like Perry and Mason. Yeah. She's, <laughs> she's, she says the same thing works when she's at funerals and trying not to cry. She says she plays an actor who's very um, calm. And I, I think that's a really... It's an underused te- technique at work for us to try on someone else's behavior. We're so focused on being ourselves and being authentic to who we are. But sometimes it's helpful, you know, what would your most calm, cool, and collected coworker do right now? Mm. Or what, w- what would your spouse do if they were in this situation? Or what would your 10-year-old daughter do in this situation? Because sometimes 
the most intelligent people among us are kids who oh, have learned all these crazy politics. That's great. Hey, uh, Amy, as we wrap up, what would you say is the, is the one thing? If, if there's just one thing I could do today to manage the conflicts at work better and, deal, and, get, and, and engage conflict a little bit more, what would be the one thing? Well, I think one of the, the most important thing is that because of the discomfort around this topic um, or around disagreements, things often get too tense and spiral out of control. And really, if you can remain calm and, you know, sometimes mindfulness techniques come in handy or breathing, you know, if you can really focus on how do I stay calm when disagreements come up, you're going to set the tone for the rest of the team that this is okay and that we are going to get through it. And I think that that's incredibly helpful, especially when people start turning red in the face or their voices, you know, um, start getting louder. Anything you can do to project comfort and calm is going to be much appreciated. Mm, Great stuff. Amy Gallo, thank you so much. And uh, we appreciate your time, your effort. Again, you can find out more about Amy and her work by just going to Harvard Business Review. You can also find her uh, book, HBR's Guide to Dealing with Conflict, the how-to guidebook about uh, handling conflict professionally and productively. Great stuff, folks. Up next, we'll do a little Coach's Corner on conflict, giving you some more tools, some insights in how to, uh, to, to be able to talk together about the most difficult things in life. What's the matter with you, boy? You too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! You know, when it comes to conflict, uh, if you if you are one of those people that just can't stand it, um, get in line. You're pretty normal. One of the things that I see every day in my work, uh, in my uh, coaching practice, is the fact that there there usually is about half of the times there's some people that just are have an aversion to the conflict. They just are running from it. They're what we call the withdrawer. And a lot of the time, the other half are what we call pursuers. And they want to engage the conflict. And usually what I find is the pursuer wants to engage it because they want progress, right? They want to get this talk on so they can fix it and they can make everything good again. Uh, meanwhile, if when I ask the withdrawer if they want to make progress – Guess what they say? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I want progress, too. So the one that runs from conflict also wants progress, but they actually want something else more. And what they tend to want more is peace. They want peace. And they've noticed that every time we go for progress, we don't feel peace. And so what ends up happening is pursuers push to talk for progress at the expense of the other person's peace. And the withdrawer goes for peace at the expense of the other person's progress. So there becomes this standoff, and it is the ultimate human dynamic in standoff in a conflict. One is going for peace, and one is going for progress, and both people want peace and progress. But we've put it at odds with each other. We don't seem to know how to talk to create progress in a peaceful way. So if you wanted a simplification of how to best manage conflict, find a way to make in a peaceful, safe way progress on an idea or an issue. And what you will find out is if you can do that, if you can create peace and safety 
while pursuing your progress, you'll be able to be an incredible communicator. If, however, you dichotomize it and you tend to choose progress over peace and safety, you're going to mess things up. And you're always going to have people running from you. So I just know people like, yeah, well, I'm just going to shoot straight and I'm just going to say it because it's just got to be said. Well, great. Okay, that's fine. But you're going to drive anyone away that, that, that won't feel safe because of that. So usually the best way to know how to handle conflict isn't by having your own theory that you bring in and then just implement your theory. The best way to handle conflict is to watch the people you're in conflict with and pay attention to their signs, right? Try to identify. Do they tend to be a pursuer or a withdrawer? Do they tend to take you on and fight you, debate you, or do they tend to run and hide? Because if they tend to run and hide, then you have to change how you manage the conflict. You have to find a way to make it safe for them to stay in the conversation. Now, you know where I learned to do this? wasn't school, and it wasn't reading books, and it wasn't a PhD. It was sitting down with couples that if they couldn't solve this problem right now in my office, they're probably going to divorce. And it creates such an incredible intensity that we've got to figure out how to do this. And that intensity um, actually sometimes makes it worse, right, because we're also afraid that we get into fight or flight. But it also allowed us to to actually be more aggressive. It allowed me to say things I wouldn't normally say to people. Um, I used to, when I was a a coach or a mediator, I would sit down and I would bring them in and I'd always ask them to bring me a picture of their family. So as we were going to mediate a divorce or try to figure out how to mediate a separation or make their marriage work, I wanted to make sure we always had a picture of the family here. Because most of the time when the people were fighting over something silly, it had nothing to do with their family. It really didn't. And once they realized that and we could keep their objective, that higher purpose in place, you'd be amazed at what we're able to do. You'd be amazed at how much nicer we can be when it actually means that, you know, we may walk out of this room done. You'd be amazed at how much nicer people are or how much – uh, how much more progress we can make when we have to make the progress. So start paying attention to it. Understand that you can have your own theory, you can have your own way, but in the end, if you do not know how to create both safety, uh, peace, and productivity, progress in a conversation, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you in a lot of different ways. And, uh, and there are skills. There's tools out there. There's books. There's information. So go looking for it. If you're afraid of it, don't keep hiding. Let's start, let's start uncovering it and getting really, really effective at it. That's just my two cents worth. And, uh, you know, we're here every day to help you learn how to do that. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, manage your conflict even better. Talk about good. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That was great. Yeah. Uh, we're we're going to turn it now over to Terry, um, who will enlighten us. Valentine's Day gift. With more Valentine's Day uh, insight. No, these From these, the love man himself. Absolutely. These are sold out, I believe, but they may come back in stock, oh, so good. you got to keep your eye out. Whew. 
Okay. SpaceX, Tulsa, uh, Tesla, and Boring Company CEO Elon Musk is trying to get the lead in the automated electric car revolution, trying to get to Mars. He's trying to revolutionize public yeah, and mass transit with the Hyperloop. He's everywhere. Last week, he started selling a flamethrower. Okay. <laughs> so that's not the gift for Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah. Look it up. Elon Musk flamethrower. What? It costs $500. Looks like an airsoft or Nerf rifle that's been modified to shoot flames. Yeah. Musk sold 1,000 units in the first three hours between the night of, what, January 27th and the early hours of the 28th. Uh, he reached 7,000 7, sold on the 29th. He wow. has a sales number of 20,000 for a goal. Uh, estimates have him making $4 million already off of the sales of such a, uh, a gun. Um, this is thrower. good for both men and women because you um, know the men are going to want it and the tired, frustrated moms are going to want it too. There you go. Eh, Look at that. It's a cool gun. got to love that. Now, but, the problem is it doesn't really throw flames, as the name would imply. It uh, It should be considered an overpriced butane torch. Yeah. Because the actual flame that comes out of it is probably only less than a foot long. So, um, I mean, it's, yeah. Do you want the relationship coach in me to answer this? Because, You're just going to say no. I just Well, I mean, it's not that I'm going to say no. It's just yeah. I think when you pull out a flamethrower for your yeah. wife. No, no, no. I mean for rather... the husband. Obviously, I think the oh, wife wouldn't care. But yeah. California Assemblyman Miguel Santiago of Los Angeles says he intends to introduce legislation that would prevent Musk's company from selling the flamethrower to the public, at least in California. The legality of the weapon in other, the other 49 states of the U.S. remains an open question. Yeah. Musk has confirmed on Twitter that the gun does not meet the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives definition of, illegal, of an illegal flamethrower, which means... The model does not emit a flame longer than or uh, larger than ten feet in range. It's under the yeah. ten foot it's mark, not a flame so it's thrower. legal. It's just uh, a torch. California may have to establish specific guidelines to, for California, well, independent honey, of U.S. You said you wanted regulation. me to take care of the spider problem. I told you I'd heat it up, <laughs> and it looks awesome. <laughs> it does. It looks like a Star Wars gun. Okay, so well, there's an option. That's one thing you can get your husband's ladies, or and, not. And by the way, get some insurance while you're at it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio.